Hey folks, welcome back to the DC3Cast. We are wrapping up our Watchmen reread this week. And to help us do that, we've brought along a friend. Uh, first of all, I'm Brian. With me, as always, are Vince and Zach. But we have from one of our sister multiversity shows, Robots from Tomorrow, longtime friend of the podcast. Um, he called himself the grandpa of multiversity before. I think, that, I think that's an unfair <laughs> assessment. Um, but it's, it's our... Great grandpa. What was that? Oh, that's great grandpa? Okay, yeah. Uh, it's our friend Greg Matasevich. Hello, Greg. Hi. Uh, it's funny. I was talking to, uh, I won't name him, an unnamed multiversity staffer the other day. And I was saying how because of just like the nature of writing on the internet, our staff is always so young. So I'm essentially just an internet RA <laughs> at this point. Yeah. Just like watching <laughs> over younger folks writing about Superman and shit. Uh, anyway, Greg, how are you doing tonight? <laughs> I'm doing well. Uh, Thank you so much for letting me uh, letting me crash the party here. Uh, it's nice to be able to be on with uh, you know the full DC three uh, crew uh, and stuff. And I'm looking forward to uh, uh, you know talking some talking some Watchmen and uh, uh, yeah, making everybody feel really young by uh, <laughs> by by. I'm not like that old, but when you're I less hear, than five years older than you're I okay, am. <laughs> but when I hear, yeah, yeah, we're like within five years of each other. But yeah. when I hear, you know, other people <laughs> talking about like, oh, I read this when I was in, ki-, you know, not kindergarten, yeah. but like <laughs> elementary school, and I'm like, oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's good. <clears throat> so uh, we're gonna be talking about Watchmen issues ten, eleven, and twelve today. Um, so. Overall thoughts, gentlemen, about these three issues. You know, I, I think I, I think I can speak for all of us when we're saying the first three in the book kind of took us by surprise how much we enjoyed them after being away from the characters for a bit. And then we all felt that it kind of began to sag a little bit. I think it was an issue eight last time, maybe, that was uh, a little bit of, of, a, of a slower issue than we had remembered. So, uh, Zach, we'll start with you. What did you think of these last three issues? Um, I, I mostly liked them. One thing that I think stuck out to me the most in this reread was how convenient, like, how, how easy Night Owl and Rorschach figured out Ozymandias' plan he he took like one guess at the password on his computer <laughs> and figured everything out. And the and the computer prompted him to, uh, you're you're yeah, almost you're, there. You're, you're Didn't you forget over. something, good buddy? <laughs> <laughs> hey, smartest man on planet Earth, you forgot the end of your own password. <laughs> it it is just it was kind of funny to me how like the plot kind of hinged on that one giant contrivance. Um which I don't. I don't know. Maybe that's just a product of, um, you know, technology at the time and the and the concept of computers and things like that. Um, clearly, something like that would never hold up now, at least in like a serious way. It would be it would be parody or, or comedy or something like that. Um, and so I maybe have to kind of read it that way. But that kind of struck me as you know for a work that is heralded as being so. Um, 
you know, masterful and complete in its construction in every way. There was a really kind of like flimsy deus ex machina there in the form of a very helpful <laughs> computer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Honestly, um, I so I love the final issue of Watchmen, but I would say eight, nine, or nine, nine, ten, and eleven maybe. It, it sags through, and it's because of things like that. Not only the password thing, not only how they figure out where to go, but also some of the stuff that Moore does to ramp up what's going on in in the in the world and with the with the climate of the civil unrest and things like that to I, like get to get them to this point. The, is, the two girlfriends fighting on the street. That and some of the other stuff is really over the top, and and I I don't remember how I felt the first time I read it, but upon these repeated readings, that stuff seems weaker all the time. You know, I I love where it eventually goes, and I I, I love uh, you know Vite pulling off his his master stroke, but to get to that point, it's like uh, you know. At the same time, I can say, living in the year 2017, is it really that outlandish? You know? <laughs> right. Like, yeah. like I'm, I'm. It's just on paper, it seems outlandish at times. Um, yeah, Greg, what, you're, you're, uh, you're here for a reason. So, uh... <laughs> yeah, I'm here to talk about issue nine. Um, no, no, no. <laughs> uh, so the, yeah, I mean, so ten or. Yeah, 10, 11, and 12, you know, we've got the sort of the everything kind of coming together. Obviously, you've got three issues, you know, jam-packed as they are to sort of wrap up this whole story. Um, <clears throat> the big sort of contrivance for me, uh, as long as we're sort of talking about that, isn't necessarily that password, although that is sort of hilarious. Um, it's the fact that the owl ship can go from like Manhattan to Antarctica, kind of like on one tank of gas and apparently like really super, super freaking quickly. So fast that it's still wet underneath. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Just you, just you guys wait, we're going to get a series in maybe, you know, three to five years called during Watchmen. It's going to show. They're going to be getting gas in, you know, the Ukraine or wherever, wherever they land. Oh, nice. Um, I actually just thought, so Antarctica, is that the North Pole or is that the South Pole? South Pole. Like, it's still stupid. I oh, don't okay. So I was, I was right. So, I mean, either way, I, I think it's a bit of a, okay, we need to, we need this to happen so the plot can continue. Um, but, yeah, the whole owl ship going to, you know, going to the, the secret palace, like, within a reasonable amount of time and still being, you know, uh, uh, wet enough to have ice and stuff. Where I was like, yeah, that's probably the biggest, the biggest sort of. Hmm, let's you know, pay no attention to this, uh, to this thing. Um, but uh, sorry, what was the question? Was it like an overall? <laughs> yeah. My, yeah. Again, old man brain brain <laughs> brain brain. Uh, no, I mean, the, so just an overall thing. Um, the least important thing about Watchmen is the plot. Yeah. Uh, uh, and so, like the plot machinations and and everything. It can be interesting, and 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 also, I'm always trying to be reminded of the fact that this came out as monthly, relatively uh, monthly issues. So, you know, it, there was a there was a production schedule and stuff that had to be that had to be met. So, 
um, um, so yeah, so, so the all those things are all uh, true, but um, it doesn't sort of detract from the you know from the work uh, uh, for me. I guess. It, it's it's interesting that you mentioned the, the monthly um, schedule. I was thinking about that as I was reading these last three issues. You know, I think whenever there's a book like this that has a number of different storylines that are kind of happening at once, mm. you can't help but have a favorite one, right? You can't help but have one that you really miss when it's not there or you can't wait to get back to. And I forgot that essentially from the end of issue nine until halfway through issue 12, there is no Dr. Manhattan and Laurie at all. Right. They're they're just gone for that, and it's one thing when you're reading this as a trade, and you're you're sitting there, and you you realize, oh, it's been fifty pages since I've seen those characters. It's different when it's been three months since you've read those characters, and that's that's really kind of an interesting decision on Morris' part. And I don't know if that's just a function of he he wanted there to be that break between maybe because. Dr. Manhattan is like in his purest form, a deus ex machina in every way that he mm-hmm. wanted to like remove that from your mind that like, oh, he can step in and change anything he wants to at, at any time here. And that was purposeful or if that was just the way that the story, I don't know. It just, it struck me as a very odd, um, sort of structure to have, in my opinion, the most compelling and perhaps iconic part of the book to be absent for so for such a long period of time. Uh, anybody else? Uh, Go for it, Greg. I mean, I well, no, no, just the um, that was one of the other things that I was uh, always sort of trying to, to keep in mind the fact that this is you know produced. I mean, it's all right. Washington both is and is not a graphic novel, right? right? It's a graphic novel in the sense that it is of a certain length <clears throat> and it deals with the sort of complexities of, of human life of, or a sort of life as we know it. Like, like this book is, this work is so, you know, is so dense and has so many sort of moving parts and pieces to it that you can, you can make that argument more for Watchmen than almost any other sort of mainstream American comic book, but it wasn't done as as, as a novel it wasn't done as like Warren Gibbons went away for you know six months or 12 months came back boom here's this book that everybody now holds up in their hand this what they what everyone looks at as like a novel is in fact a collection of 12 separate chunks that were done sequentially and were have been sort of pieced together into a collection you know so you so there are there are a lot of choices that are made throughout the work that would not have been made just simply wouldn't have been done if it weren't for the fact that these had to be these had to be produced in a, in a certain way and one of them as i was doing a little bit of research was that the whole reason that we have these back matter pages started from the fact that for the first couple of issues i don't know i don't know if you guys know this story but i'll tell it anyway um for the first couple of issues um so these these comics weren't going to have ads right so they're going to be like 28 pages or 26 pages and they were going to have like you know 22 or 24 pages of of uh you know story and art but there are going to be a couple of pages that they weren't that they're going to have blank and they're like well we'll just use those as letter pages and it's like well you're not going to have letter pages until like issues three maybe or four right because mm-hmm. you need to have issues to come out especially back then you need to have the issues 
issues out before you can have letters in response to the issues. So they were like, well, we could do some like self-congratulatory sort of text pieces like, hi, I'm Alan Moore. Hi, I'm Dave Givens. Here's what I worked on. Here's what we're excited to do with Watchmen, yada, yada, yada. And so they didn't want to do that. And they're like, well, in the first issue, we talk about under the hood. Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be fun to just sort of put some under some actual sort of under the hood material in there? So they did, and they liked how that worked. And so once it came to issue three and four, they were like, hey, this back matter material works pretty well. Let's just keep doing it, you know? So that whole avenue to impart this sort of secondary layer of commentary and metatextual hyperlinked sort of information would never have, I don't say never, but I think it'd be safe to say would not have been really high on the priority list unless this had been done in a, you know, monthly production sort of you know sort of environment and you know that back matter really helps inform a lot of the stuff that happens you know in the uh uh you know in the main body of the the main body of the work so um so that's something i find one just fascinating uh and i think it helps that sort of understanding helps sort of keep these things in perspective of like why you know why certain things happened and why certain choices were you know were, were made um the flip side to that is that um maybe not necessarily the flip side but the other thing i try and keep in mind uh is that um dave gibbons and john higgins never get enough credit for what they do uh, uh in this book um this is especially gibbons being both artist and letterer um it's every time I re, every time I come back to this, it's it's super, just astounding. Um, in terms of being able to um, to impart all of this information, especially once you're using um, you know the nine panel or a grid structure, and especially like a nine panel grid structure, um, using that many panels, uh, you know, in in one case as we see. Um, Using that many panels, obviously the panels need to be of a certain size. And the more panels you have on a page, the smaller those panels are, right? So the amount of usable space that you have in each panel uh, decreases because you want to both have space for the, uh, you know, for the word balloons. Because, um, of course, you don't have thought bubbles because they did away with, you know, with those for these. Um, and also have art and have them sort of work, you know, in, in tandem. And so Gibbons being able to basically, basically every line in Watchmen, every line that's drawn on a page, except for one page, uh, is drawn by Dave Gibbons. So he had complete control over how to tell this, how to tell this story. And in designing the world and in, and in crafting it and how, you know, panels are laid out and, and, you know, even keeping depth of field and using, so you have a nine panel grid and each one of these panels is so small, but you have you still have depth of field in all of these panels. I mean, Gibbons is a complete. I I, I cannot over uh, over speak my uh, my admiration for him, sort of in this regard. And let's not to completely hijack the thing here, but let's go back <laughs> to the to the. Uh, sorry, I've been thinking about this for for a little bit. Uh, let's go back to the um, uh, the Vite office uh, scene where you know Night Owl is on the computer, and so he's he's trying to figure out that password. Right. So you go back to those panels. So it's like three, maybe six panels. And you've got you've got Night Owl in the foreground. He's at the computer. He's typing, um, you know, he's typing the, the the password into the computer. 
you see it up on the screen that's in like the foreground then you have rorschach in the background he's looking at all of the egyptian stuff that vite has up on the walls and he's talking and then you have his word balloons him walking you need to be able to see at least some of the wall stuff to see what he's talking about and that's all in the background and so you'll have panel and panel and panel of his conversation going on. And in the foreground, you have, you know, Night Owl, the beats of Night Owl, typing it in, getting the response, thinking, typing again, this. And it's just like these little, every time I read Watchmen, I go back and I see these little bits of just um, uh, precision um, fitting in all of this information uh, Gibbons making everything fit onto the page and making it completely readable and understandable when there is when there's just so much going on uh, just really, and really, really and impressive. iconic like yeah how is there is there any other work in comics that has as many iconic images or scenes drawn by one person created by the same creative team I mean. I can think of a dozen or more in in Watchmen that are like images that stand the test of time and that I'll never forget, you know? Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I think we've done yeah. a pretty good I think we've done a pretty good job of slobbering more on Dave Gibbons during our discussions here than we've <laughs> yeah, been yeah, Alan yeah, Moore. Sorry. sorry, I didn't mean that to come off like nope, no, 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 Part of that has to be because when we think about novels, we think of novels written, written, writer. So it's the writer that creates and it's the illustrator that comes in and sort of illustrates it. But it's the writer that's sort of the the main focus. And I think we in North, you know, in, you know, I guess North America or in, or in the States or whatever, just don't have have a harder time coming to grips with the the uh, division of labor. Like when you look at European graphic novels, when they're reprinted over here, or at least in their covers and stuff, the artist is always listed first. The first name is always the artist, not the writer, if you want to, if they have those sort of traditional roles. Whereas here, it's reversed. And I I think that speaks to something a little more, just sort of like a cultural sort of thing. Like we, you know, the difference is sort of in cultures. Yeah. So. Anyway, the other the other thing is really it's <laughs> really quick, uh, Vince. When you talk about like iconic moments, one of the things going back and looking at these, uh, going back on these rereads is not necessarily seeing the icon or seeing the iconic moments that I remember from earlier, but seeing how small they are on the page. Mm. You know, so mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, you think of them as, as like huge because we're used to thinking of important images as being big images like splash pages and everything. But so many of those, uh, you know, so many of those moments are, you know, maybe a third of the page, a ninth of the page, you know, half the page, maybe, you know, they're never as big as we, you know, as we expect them to. And I think one of the, one of the payoffs of the discipline of keeping everything as being some fragment of the page is that when we get to the beginning of issue 12, those are the only those four or five pages are the only time we see full page splashes mm-hmm. in the entire book. Twelve issues of you know incredibly packed comics. It's not until that last part where they're like, okay, we're going to open it up for this. You know, for, we're going to make this the you know we're going to make this the real emphasis. And because they've been disciplined enough to sort of hold off until this point, I think that helps make it even more impactful. Mm-hmm. 
and and you know at last episode i joked a bit about the um the ending of issue 11 mm-hmm. but i can only imagine at the time like how jaw-dropping that kind of was that they sort of buried the you know huge twist of the issue about like halfway through where they have adrian go through and press the button mm-hmm. and then there's the payoff at the end um i know that that moment like that line the i did it 35 minutes ago is kind of you know worked its way into the comic book lexicon so much that mm-hmm. we take it for granted but I, I can like only imagine what that was like yeah it was and not that I read this when it came out, um, but I do remember it being very the anticlimax of it sort of helps feed into everything else about Watchmen being different, mm-hmm. right? Like you mm-hmm. weren't expecting, you weren't, you were, you may not have been expecting complete sort of fisticuffs at the end, but you're like, oh, there's no way they're going to be like they're. There's no way there's going to be that sort of a rug pull, you know, at at, at the end of this. Um, yeah. Yeah. I also like the way that, you know, when I was when I was growing up, I had always heard about Watchmen being this um, realistic grown up take on superheroes, and for the most part, I mean, it is grown up, you know. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know about realistic. I don't know how, if I buy that, you know, but like the way that people sometimes describe it is, oh, what it's what if, uh, you know, costumed heroes were real and they were real in the in during the Cold War or whatever, you know, or 1980s and, you know, whatever. Um, and uh, I love the way that that whole thing, like like Zach, like you said, and Greg, both of you said how it how it plays a against expectations and and that's how it's different Mm -hmm. but then how in the final issue you open that up and you see oh no it's a superhero sci-fi story at its core you know it can be Mm -hmm. it can be both and uh and i remember when i was you know i read this for the first time i was blown away by uh by that by the opening you know pages of issue number 12 Mm-hmm. And um, it's the thing that that I'm I'm least happy with with the movie adaptation because um, I thought it was a really weird note for them to uh, make Adrian Veidt sing the entire score of the HMS Pinafore. That's <laughs> 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 an excellent uh, Simpsons reference out there for anyone who's wondering. Excellent Simpsons <laughs> reference. Huh. No, but th- th- that was just such a crazy comic book moment. And when I read that, I was like, "Oh, this this has been a very like mature and detailed take and and different take on superhero comics." And then issue twelve comes along, and it's like, "But it's also this weird Lovecraftian <laughs> like thing that you could never mm. do in any other medium with any credibility." You know? Yeah. Do you? Here's just to throw this out to just sort of everybody. Do you consider Watchmen a superhero story? I, I feel like I'm supposed to say no, but I but I mean, 
<laughs> I think it is. Yeah. 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 I think I definitely do. Brian. I don't know. You know, I was I was thinking about this a little bit before because so uh, we record on Thursdays. Thursday is my day as a stay at home dad. I have a night a, a twenty month old kid walking around the house. You're the real superhero. <laughs> yes, not all heroes wear capes. Um, but you know, uh, but no, you know. And this uh, book tells us why. Yes, exactly. Because they, <laughs> they give you ED. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, but you know my. Uh, my son was at one point picked up my copy of Watchmen, and I was like, "Nope, not gonna, not gonna look at that." You know, uh, not not that his not that his you know s- small toddler brain could understand any of it, but I was thinking like, you know, there are plenty of times when he's sat next to me and I'm reading a comic and I'm kind of showing him what's going on and all that, and I feel like at the heart of a superhero comic there is this very clear uh, organization of right and wrong. And there, and there, there's a very clear understanding of, even if there's nuance there, the goals of the heroes are very, very much universal. The goals of the heroes are are to protect and to 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 stop evil from happening. And I feel like the goals of the characters in Watchmen, almost none of them have goals that are that broad. They're all very, I mean, Vite thinks he does. Mm-hmm. Right, Vite thinks that he is, he he sees himself as Superman in a way, but every other character is just kind of dealing with their own shit, and they're, uh, you know, they're dealing with it through the lens of superhero comics. But I don't know if it's a superhero story. I don't. Yeah. Uh, what do you think? I don't consider. I don't consider it a superhero story at all, um, and I don't know if this is necessarily because I know that. <clears throat> That you know, with Moore and Gibbons and a lot of the other, and and Higgins actually, with their 2000 AD background and their sort of being being British, their sort of removal from super from growing up with superheroes as much as sort of American creators did, and they're looking at superheroes through a science fiction lens. I I, I think that it's all sort of jumbled up in my head, but I think that the fact that if Watchmen is predicated on the sort of the what if idea, what if when superhero comics came out in the forties, people started dressing up as superheroes. And then what if you had somebody who was an actual super being, if the ideas of science fiction is to basically take a, a, a what if idea, a novum or whatever, and sort of carry that through. I think that Watchmen is much closer to that than of a superhero story. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. like it's it, it, it at its heart, it's not a superhero story. It deals with su- it deconstructs superheroes. It it you know makes political um, you know political observations about where the world was and where the world was going and what could have changed if mm-hmm. you know you had a super you know a Superman a Superman could end you know Vietnam before it became a huge train wreck, which means Nixon would have stayed in power and he would have you know, repealed the 25th Amendment, so he would have been in power for four and five terms, and this is where things go, and, and you know, that's all, it, it's more of that sort of super, um, science fiction thing versus a whatever, or versus a, versus a superhero, and I think, I don't say I think it's important, but um, I, I think it's an interesting, I think it's an interesting way to, you know, to look at it as as this, you know, comment on all of these sort of all of these sort of things. Um, I I had heard it described once, and I don't necessarily agree with this description, but I think it's interesting, especially in light of this conversation. Um, 
that it was a superhero story for folks and by folks who don't like superheroes. Ah. And I don't like that. Um, yeah. But I understand why that's a lazy way to describe it. And I think that's trying to put into words the fact that it's not a superhero story, you know, like it's a sci-fi thing. It's, it's science fiction tech, science fiction techniques being applied to a being applied to superhero tropes and, you know, gimmicks is sort of working them out through to a conclusion. But I know that, you know, Moore and Gibbons never intended to be like, we're done with, I mean, he might have been sort of done with superheroes, but not like this will end superheroes. That was never the intention, nor was like Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns. That was never supposed to be like the last word on superheroes. But of course, everybody sort of, you know, everybody sort of sort of takes it like that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, do you think that having now read Watchmen, do you think um, there's any way that people will maybe take away the things from it that they should, as opposed to what they sort of seem to be taking from it? Does that make question make any? Oh, I think everyone, I, I think the vast majority take away not what you're supposed to take away from Watchmen. <laughs> okay. Or is there any hope of that I ever mean, changing? No, I don't think so. Okay. Let's put not, it this not way. With the, not with the film being now, like I would say the dominant cultural touchstone mm-hmm. for uh, the masses. What I was going to say is, you know, like I, I feel like you can never expect the audience to take what they're supposed to take from it. The fact that like when I was in middle school, like things were sent home to my parents about like how kids are going to start fires because Beavis and Butthead think fire is cool. And like not like just people not understanding that that was, you know, that you weren't supposed to the kids weren't supposed to want to be like Beavis and Butthead, but people were being like Beavis and Butthead because people were fucking dumb. And so yeah. like, I, I can't help but think that people are going to constantly take the wrong message from this book. And I think that because, precisely, Greg, because of some of the things you're saying, because it is a more, um, because it's a less, I, I don't want to say a less pure superhero story, because that, that sounds wrong, but because it's a super, it's superhero story that, that does have more sex and more uh, moral gray area and have more, it has more sort of, you know, accoutrement around it. It's also a shorthand for people who want to sound smart to say they like Watchmen. And the second you're trying to sound like something other than what you are, you're not getting the actual point of the work. Well, and I mean, like, you know, it's not just Watchmen either. I don't think that a lot of times people take what people get the point of you know normal superhero comics either you know it's the same reason that twisted joker is so cool you know like oh rorschach is so cool he doesn't care about anything and he's so twisted and he you know his costume looks so great 10 out of 10 (laughs) um (laughs) you got it in there thanks pal got it never gets old Uh, so I mean I think that's like honestly something that's more just endemic with the medium and I I guess like that's maybe why it's easier for me to see Watchmen as a a superhero story because even though it it maybe exists on a little bit of a different level it's still you're still having 
a lot of the same conversations, maybe just a little bit more intellectually with, you know, a little bit more depth. It's not, mm-hmm. and that has, I think has to do more with like a, the creative team B the, the format, you know, it's not a, just one more story in a 700 issue series. Um, it's not just another Batman story. It's not just another, whatever it's its own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, the fact that it even does, like, have its roots in the the Charlton heroes, mm-hmm. um, you know, that kind of speaks a little bit. I, that, I think all of those things go into me seeing it more as a, it is a superhero story just with more nuance and, um, and depth than your typical, you know, monthly comic. Yeah, um, I did want to point out. It's interesting that Greg brought up that um, what's happening in the background of the Night Owl figures out the password scene because that was definitely I wanted to talk about that too. How just how that is such a masterclass in sequential storytelling because in lesser hands, the exact same dialogue could be there, and even the exact same panel breakdown could be there. But Gibbons just does so much in the background of those of those scenes. It, it's really, really incredible. And the other thing I wanted to talk about sort of visually was how I forgot how little of the monster you actually see. Mm-hmm. Like, it, you really, if you're, if you read this quickly, you may not even notice anything but, you know, the destruction around it because there's not, like, for some reason in my head, there was this, like, money shot of the monster that we don't really ever get. And uh, I find it interesting, Vince, that you say that the removal of the monster is your least favorite part of the film. Because I can understand why they wouldn't want that in the film. Oh, of course. No, it, it would not. They would not be able to do it credibly in in a movie. They, you know, I don't care how advanced... Uh, CGI is I they wouldn't have been able to pull it off for sure um I really just wanted to make a sideshow Bob joke understood <laughs> understood um but no I mean that ending you know it, it's it's interesting I had to read this or, or rather not had to this was assigned in one of my theology classes in college um as one of the the texts we read and somebody in the class uh I mean, to be fair, this guy wore a fedora to class every day, so take this comment with a grain of salt <laughs> that only a fedora-wearing gentleman could could uh, could have. But he basically said that the book is perfect except the monster. Yeah. That he felt that was the worst part of the book. And, uh, you know, uh, his, his... Was it Len Wein? It was not Len Wein, no. <laughs> um, but his, at least I, I hope not, because <laughs> that would have been confusing for a number of reasons. Um, but, but no, uh, I understand... The idea that I mean it, it's it's as close to a like you know there's a certain percentage of the population that wants to be able to figure out the story before it's being told you know and there's again to, to, we before we got on the air we we're talking about our bingo cards like there is no way anybody had like Lovecraftian monster teleported into New York on their bingo card for Watchmen when, when they're starting reading it. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it does, it is literally a deus ex machina. It is a God creature coming out of nothing. And I understand why that is frustrating on one level, 
But to me, that's what makes it so brilliant. Hmm. I don't know. Uh, I've always been a fan of the monster. Yeah, I've, I, I think the monster is set up reasonably well. Like, I mean, you see it come together both in the, you know, in the pages and then like the back manner, you see all the parts and pieces that start getting sort of pulled together to, you know, to justify it, if you will. Um, maybe not to the taste, you know, to other people's liking. And of course, there's the thing of it being kind of a rip, not a rip off, a take uh, from an Outer Limits episode, which gets mentioned at the, in like the last couple of pages of Watchmen as sort of a nod to maybe where Moore got the idea. Um, I think you could say that, well, you know, uh, it's sort of a comment on Adrian where before, you know, he, in the end of issue 11, they're saying, uh, you know, he makes the comment of like, well, I'm not some Republic serial villain. You know, I'm not waiting for you to, you know, to have some chance to stop me. I did this, you know, I'm, I'm smarter than that. And then it turns out, no, he is sort of a, you know, kind of a cheap, in some ways it sort of undercuts his, his, uh, you know, or, uh, emphasizes his assholeness, if I can butcher that word, uh, like, <laughs> I'm smarter than that. It's like, no, 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 no. Like it's good and everything, but, but still you're, you're not quite as, you're not quite as, as slick as you, as you think you are. So yeah. Anyway. Um, uh, yeah. Greg, what, what was sort of your, your big takeaway from, from this reread of the, of the book? Uh, just that it, it continues to impress in its technical achievement. You know, um, I'm always, I enjoy the story and I think it's effective. I, I think it's effective. It's not like my favorite Alan Moore story. Um, but I can always marvel, no pun intended, at the at the execution of it, both in in terms of the, uh, you know, the 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 Gibbons, um, you know, the art and the lettering, the executions and the transitions, and just the fact that this was the first this was the first real comic that I read that felt deliberately constructed, and I've picked this up and read it in pieces and in and in whole many times over the over the years. And I always find something new uh, and some connection that I didn't necessarily realize. Um, one of the ones I, I realized uh, just today when um, uh, in issue nine, when, when Lori is, is uh, having a flashback to yelling at, uh, at the comedian uh, when she throws the drink in, in you know, his face, she's wearing the Dr. Manhattan, uh, the earrings that, that Dr. Manhattan gave to Janie Slater. Wait, no. Lori, sorry, Lori, I don't know if I said that right. Lori is yelling at, you know, her dad, yeah. spoiler. Uh, and she's wearing those Janie Slater, Dr. Manhattan earrings. And if Dr. Manhattan is like, well, this is my girlfriend. She gets the earrings. <laughs> and so, like, they're, the, you know, like, they're the same ones. And I'm like, oh, I didn't, oh, I didn't notice that. You know, like, little things. But it, the fact that this, this book is, it, you know, there are moving parts and pieces in every sort of story, but it feels like in this book, you can take this apart almost, you know, like a watch. And there are, there are all the gears and, and not levers, but all the little parts and pieces are all there and everything fits. And as a work produced in the, in the North American mainstream comics market, this is as close to the pinnacle of, a certain the uh, close to the pinnacle of two uh, let me first, close to the pinnacle of uh, a small group of creators getting together and saying we're gonna do something 
that pushes what we can do. And we're going to get it out relatively on schedule. And this is going to be just like there's there's nothing sort of special about this other than the work itself. Now, that doesn't mean that there can't be other comic books to be able to achieve this through other methods. Like, you don't have to do every comic exactly as how Dave Gibbons did it, because you can't, because Dave Gibbons is Dave Gibbons. Like, everybody has their own, you know, everybody has their own styles and this and that. But in terms of this, is this, this raised the bar. And every time I go back to it, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, that was, that was, that was as good as as I thought it was. I uh, I'm pretty curious. What is your favorite Alan Moore story? Um, I was <laughs> I was thinking about that, and um, I'm not entirely sure. I know it's not this. <laughs> um, it kind of changes. Like, uh, for the man who has everything is is a little mm. more emotionally satisfying for yeah. me. Interesting story. I got that for my 10th birthday. Uh, that was actually the first, um, that was the first Alan Moore, Dave Gibbons comic I got. I got it. Um, it was at a birthday party and you know, the people who came over, all the kids and stuff, it's like, you can spend five bucks and you can buy a present. That was sort of like the price limit. Right. And mm-hmm. some kid that some, some, you know, friend of mine had gone to a store and you know paid five bucks for a comic and it was for the man who has everything well like that was yeah i was like wow that was that was winning the freaking lottery yeah there um and there are others that i there are others that i really like um i just know that as much as i enjoy Watchmen, i enjoy it i enjoy this story but i don't love the story as much as i do some other uh you know some other alan moore uh, books, but of course, uh, I haven't had time to really think through an actual answer to that question. So <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. I think I think I maybe almost prefer whatever happened in the Man of Tomorrow over Ooh, the yeah. everything. Yeah, I think that's yeah. my favorite. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, even that. Yeah, right there. That was. Yeah. So his like actual superhero stuff is a little more or has more heart to it. Like he can be cynical. Yeah. He can be or I do. Oh man, I do really like uh, the end of issue nine. Um, his the thermodynamic mm-hmm. miracle yeah. speech. That is idea that, is that your favorite part? By the way, you had said that oh, there's a part in uh, issue nine that's like your favorite. The it's the the two pages right before that are my favorite sequence. But that that favorite sequence and then the thermodynamic miracle. That idea of you know everybody being a miracle, but we don't recognize it because we're sort of around it all day. That is a really powerful idea and it's one that's really always stuck with me and again that may be one of, that may be one of my favorite Alan Moore ideas not not that he like created that idea but that sort of I had that realization when I read that there and I was like oh it was so you know it was so powerful to me I think still to this day it's it's a wonderful encapsulation of you know of, of why you know life is special you know, mm-hmm. to be able to distill it as like all every all these things that could happen, all these things that could happen, all these things that could happen. But this miracle, and then this miracle, and then this miracle has made this thing, and everything is unique. And this, and I was like, that's 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 beautiful. And I love um, I love how then in issue twelve, Lori has her own version of that, which mm-hmm. is just like, I'm so happy to be alive. Let's fuck. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Let's, let's keep perpetuating the thermodynamics. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, again, again. Um, so just really quick, the sequence before um, it's on it's issue nine uh, pages, I think twenty three and twenty four, when Laurie has her epiphany about who her who her father is. Um, I actually go into this a bit on on the site for my article about when uh, Gibbons was named Comics Laureate. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically. So, so the earlier parts of the issue, uh, we've seen her sort of talking to John about these different parts of her life, and she's, you know, John's talking to her, and you know, saying that, you know, she's repressing something as if, she, you know, she's, you know, she's fragile and that she's hiding something, and she's telling him, no, 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 that's not the case. As she's doing that, her brain is, you know, it's one of those things you mentioned, pink elephant. And all of a sudden, you sort of start, start thinking about pink elephants. So I think like her brain is sort of going through all these snapshots of stuff that we've seen earlier in the issue and earlier in the series. And so Gibbons, so you have your nine panel grid and your Gibbons, Gibbons is going from the re, you know, from the current time on Mars back to different periods of, of these flashbacks, you know, Higgins coloring wise, he's using, uh, I mean, he uses a flat color scheme for the whole, you know, for the whole um, series, but he's using sort of your single tone, um, for the flashback panels uh, and then sort of more moderated colors for sort of the, for the present day for the Mars sequences. Um, But then just, just in terms of lettering um, you have Laurie's present dialogue. You have John's dialogue, which is differentiated by being in blue. Then you have caption, uh, which are, you know, not balloon shaped, but they're square. You have captions that have quotes in them. Uh, you have all of this, you have this cacophony of ideas and, uh, quotes and little bits of, of business as you're sort of sifting through all of these, uh, uh, words and phrases that she's thinking of until she gets to sort of the realization. So it's a very, there's a lot going on. And if you go and you, you know, you watch the, the movie, uh, it is not handled I feel particularly well, uh, essentially for the fact that Laurie is like, you know, John, do that thing you do, you know, make me understand what you're talking about because I can't think because I'm not a real person because I'm written completely. (laughs) Sorry, I'm going off on a a tangent, but that's the thing. He doesn't have to do some like watch vision or whatever. (laughs) Right. This right. She is, she's an adult and she has one of these sort of realizations. So, so she's confident through all of these, you know, um, snippets of, of, of conversations that she's heard throughout her life. And we hear her going back to Eddie, uh, you know, his thing of, of when he was, when Eddie was talking to, to, um, uh, Sally and, you know, it's the, can I talk to my, you know, my best friend or old friend's daughter and the use of different shape of word balloons, different, um, you know, it's it's through this lettering and the fact that comics you can see the lettering on the page and it's not it can be um uh, I've got the page here. It can be sort of over, overwhelming without being uh muddied and you can still sort of follow it. And then so if you're on page twenty three you hear, you know, who do you think I am? Old friend's daughter, friend's daughter, his you know, his blah blah blah. And then we get to page twenty four, and if you're looking at sort of the top you know, sort of the that top row, and if you follow the lettering from like the top right down through the the, the lettering makes a Z from like all across the the, the top row down uh, to sort of the middle panel, and then you follow her. And it goes across, and she goes up. You're not my, you're not my, 
uh, and it's like, Christ, we were just talking, can I got to talk to his, you know, no daughter. And you just have the one, it, 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 it distills all of those words down to the one caption thing of daughter question mark. And then you look to her and she's throwing the bottle and you see the bottle move across and the use of, so you have, you have the changing of sequences, jumping back and forth and back and forth and putting all of these pieces together for the reader to assemble as Laurie's assembling them together. You turn the page, you see things funneling down to this one point, to this one point, to this one point, blah, 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 no daughter. And I was, when I read that as, you know, a high school kid or whatever, I was like, daughter, <gasps> I audibly gasped. I remember that specifically. I was, it, fucking blew my mind and you get to that point she throws the bottle and and it your eye it was it was a masterful distillation of all of this the masterful use of the page to bring you through a realization of it was just great it was it was really really great and that's all that's all gibbons that's all i mean Okay, what he's what, the information that he's imparting is coming from more, but the fact that all of that can be distilled into two pages, and you can have the epiphany along with the character—that's all Gibbons, and it fucking blew my mind. It's still—I still look at it, and I'm like, that's that's fantastic. And because he's his own letterer, he gets to place those word balloons, and he gets to—you know—they're not laid on top of artwork. He's crafting everything to you know, from the point of, you know, <laughs> from the point of conception up through the execution on the page, he is controlling everything to get it to that one particular point. All of those choices, all of those little things, uh, you know, choices beget other choices, and it comes down to a single point of daughter. Mm. So, Greg, yeah. you, you talk about comics way better than the DC3 talks about comics. <laughs> no, I've had 20-some years to sort of boil that one over, so... I'm not saying you know that. Uh, I'm not saying that was the high point, but uh, yeah, that's I, I, I thought about that quite a you know <laughs> quite a bit. So anyway, uh, uh, I, I think we uh, you know should listen to more of the DC three talking about comics. So uh, <laughs> any uh, any sort of final uh, thoughts? I guess. Uh. I mean, not final. I mean, you guys can talk about it again <laughs> next week or, or whatever. But I have, I have kind of one. Just um, you know, I so I was thinking about this book today after after I finished reading. I finished reading it a couple of days ago, and I was going back and rereading a couple of things today. And I was just thinking about how, how the, there there can never really be a modern analog for this comic ever again for a number of reasons, you know. There, there, there's never going to be another Beatles. There's never going to be another Star Wars. Never going to be another Watchmen. For, for, for better, or for worse, that's just the way it is. Um, and I really wonder if, if, but you know, if this book were to be written in tw or produced in 2017, would DC expect the writer to be doing five other series at the same time? Would somebody be given? the latitude to tell the story in the way it was told with the implication that there's, I don't know. It, it just, this just feels to me like it's, it's a work that DC could have, could have never predicted its, its influence or its impact. 
and yet it gave it gave these two reasonably high profile creators a a a blank slate to tell this completely unique original story and i just i i can't see even the circumstances that led to this ever happening again right can can you guys think of another of another book like this given this kind of f- space and freedom no no but i also think i mean i'd i'd love to see another writer even pitch something like this to dc or marvel you know what i'm saying like uh-huh. i think well i mean we've definitely had people who have tried i think um you know i know we like rag on tom king a lot and i <laughs> don't really mean to but i get the I feel like a lot of his works feel like they're trying to capture that. But they're trying to capture that within the, the DC universe with characters that are well, already established. Well, yeah. Right, right. Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, there. Was, I don't know. It is just funny, like, how many of his series are, like, 12-issue things. And even, like, like the sheriff of um, not Nottingham. Babylon. <laughs> I wish it was. Oh, man. That's... Sheriff of Rottingham. Rottingham. Right? Oh. Whoa. He's a delight. Uh, I think one of the one of the benefits of Watchmen is that it did not start off being Watchmen. Right. It started off being it was a it was a murder mystery featuring characters that if you squinted looked like the Charlton characters. And it wasn't until it was a couple of issues in, once the buzz started going, once Moore and Gibbons and Higgins got up a good head of steam, then it became something else. So they were able to sort of fly under the radar long enough that they were then able to you know, once they got out on the open road to mix different weird as metaphors, uh, they were able to let this blossom into what it eventually came to be. Uh, interestingly enough, Moore and Gibbons before this had pitched working on Challengers of the Unknown together. They'd pitched working on Martian Manhunter. Uh, and so though there were there were other works that they were going to do together that didn't end up being, you know, that didn't end up being Watchmen. Um, I feel like there is a possibility at a large company. Let me, I feel like there's a possibility, there is a possibility at DC for something like this to maybe happen. Uh, maybe over at Vert- more at Vertigo huh, than 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 regular DC, although even now it'll be couched in terms of you know like creator ownership, and so it probably wouldn't even have been, it. Uh-huh. It just I, it just I, I feel feels like to my... me like that there there are so many things that Watchmen has done. Like Vertigo, it, Vertigo was not built because of Watchmen. But it wasn't not built because of Watchmen. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's just, it's so ingrained in comics culture now that it's hard to separate anything from Watchmen completely. There is, there is no reason the technical achievement of Watchmen can't happen at DC. Right. Right. That everything else, probably not. But in terms of, and maybe that's just because that's where 
you know, for Watchmen, more of my sympathy and more of my uh, affection and in, in it overall goes for the the technical achievement. Like, there's no there's no reason you can't have comics as this considered at DC or Marvel or really, you know, at sort of any at any publisher, all other things sort of taken off the you know off the table. Um, the problem that there are other things on the table sort of is what sort of keeps it from happening. Um, yeah. So I don't think we're going to see it, but I don't think it's impossible. Hope springs eternal, I guess is maybe my, what keeps me going to the store. And yeah. yeah. Um, Zach and Vince, anything else to add? No, I think, I think we, I think we give Greg the last word here. <laughs> Hope springs eternal. I leave it entirely in your hands. Just, <laughs> well, so you know, you're listening to this, loyal DC Three Cast listeners. If you're listening to this today, it comes out. Yeah, uh, this is also the day of the release of Doomsday Clock Number One, the sequel-ish question mark thing that that uh, Jeff Johns and Gary Frank are doing that ties into not only Watchmen but also the DC universe uh, proper with Superman being sort of the focal character there. Um, we are releasing a special episode later today. Again, if you listen to this on Wednesday, later today there will be a special Doomsday Clock number one uh, episode with the DC3 uh, minus our friend Greg uh, talking about the uh, about the book. And uh, so we're not going to get into that right now, but overall, bef- you know, so, so, uh, sort of our last... Our last pre-reading the issue discussion about Doomsday Clock, having read Watchmen again, has this changed the way you think about the comic that that, that we're going to be getting? Has has rereading Watchmen made it made you more excited about it? Has it reminded you how bad of an idea this is? Where are you guys sort of feeling about Doomsday Clock in the shadow of Watchmen? Uh, I, I'll say that, um, something I strongly believed before rereading Watchmen and believe even, even more after reading it is that there shouldn't be anything after Watchmen. There shouldn't be after Watchmen. There are things that not only is this a complete work, but there are things that are ambiguous about it that, no one should ever have the answer to. There's things that that the book suggests to us that we sort of form in our minds, maybe. That even the movie, which is just a straight adaptation of the of this work alone, makes literal, you know. And I already don't like that, <laughs> and so I don't need anything beyond it. I'm uh, I, I'm really struggling with it. I, I've got. I've got two hot takes in defense of what Doomsday Clock may or may not end up being, Um, which I will preface with saying that, yeah, it's probably a bad idea. (laughs) Um, It's probably not something we need. One is within the text. um, You know, Dr. Manhattan says says it himself that nothing ever ends, so... It, it in a weird twisted way it does seem kind of fitting that it would get revisited and then but the second thing is that um 
I don't think that whatever answers that Doomsday Clock may give us about um, about things that happen within the original text or things that happen after or before, whatever whatever you know manipulations it has to Watchmen, I don't think that that will or should affect the experience of the original text and maybe it will maybe i don't know maybe that's like maybe like the film you know once you've seen the film you can kind of never go back i it it has like kind of tainted my reading but i i I don't think you know we had before watchmen i don't think that that really hurt the original in any way or affected it it's something you can easily ignore um and so I kind of feel the same way about Doomsday Clock. Yeah. I think about Before Watchmen uh, an unnecessary amount of time. <laughs> Do you? Okay, see, I I don't. But I think I only read a little bit of it or mm. very, you know, enough that it maybe didn't affect me. So maybe I'm speaking out of turn. I guess, you know, we'll see in a year. <laughs> you're, you're the lucky one, Zach. Yeah. Bitch to be me. Yeah. <laughs> See, I remember when I was a uh, freshman in high school. I forget what book it was that we had read. We had read some some book in class, and one of my fellow students, we were talking about like, oh, it, it, it was of mice and men. I remember specifically it was a, it was of mice and men, and we were discussing, you know, the end of the book where where George shoots Lenny. Spoiler alert for of mice and men, I guess. Um, and uh, one of my classmates. Said, yeah, said something along the lines of like, you know, I wonder if George thinks about this often, like if this haunts him. And the teacher was like, well, you should never ever think that because when a book ends, the character is dead, and it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't continue on. There's no point in thinking about what ifs. The the work is intended. You know, the author writes what what is intended, and anything else that you bring to it is useless. And you know that might be a bit of a harsh message for uh, for a well-meaning ninth grader to hear. You know who's just trying <laughs> to participate in, in class. You know, I, I I'm sorry, I remember who it was who said that. Um, and uh, you know, I I so I, I think about that sort of stuff sometimes. Where like you know, the 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 question of what happens after Watchmen doesn't really matter because it matters in so much as that what more and Gibbons say is the beginning the end and everything about Watchmen but also if you do choose to play that game in your head of what happened I think that's a very personal thing and that's the great part about art is that it means something different to everybody and so I think it's a little bit different Zach to look at the before Watchmen stuff and ignore it because that ultimately doesn't change anything you see on the page of Watchmen but when Endings are left purposely ambiguous, and then we find out the the actual result of it. It just feels different. I don't know. There's well, something about I, prequel versus sequel here. Well, but it's also like, I mean, the, the ending is kind of ambiguous, but it's also really, I mean, it's not. It's ambiguous just in the same way that any story ends and you don't know what happens next. Um, right, right. I mean, we're it's pretty much laid out we have an ending that you can extrapolate from like, okay, there's peace. Um, Doomsday clock feels like fan fiction and maybe I see it a little bit more that way. So it doesn't bother me as much. Yeah. 
I mean, I guess th- there are elements that don't have anything to do with the ending that I'm saying, like, I, I hope are not toyed with or answered or expanded on. They, they already kind of have been with Before Watchmen and, and the movie. But then also just, you know, what happens with that journal that lands on the desk, you know? I mean, I, I think we all know where that goes in our minds, but I don't want to see that explicitly play out on the page, you know? That's all. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be... I mean, I'm going to watch the Lord of the Rings prequel on Amazon when it comes out. And so I'm just that kind of guy, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm I'm going to do it. Yeah, well, I'm going to do it. But <laughs> I just have such trepidations about it. Yeah. I guess. I guess my biggest. How how can I put this? It feels like at this point, it's inevitable that everything will be tarnished by something else. Like every work of art, you know, even, and and this isn't anything new. Like, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle killed off Sherlock Holmes and then had to bring him back, you know, like, because the man was there, you know. Holmes and Moriarty went off a cliff and. And they, and they were brought back. You know, th- this isn't anything new. This is just yeah. what happens to to pop culture stuff uh, when enough time has has passed and enough popularity is there to justify it. I'm glad that if DC is going to do this, and I still think it's a bad idea that they do it. If they're going to do it, they are putting their most trusted writer on it, and they're making it into an event that feels. Of the scale that Watchmen deserves, like this is way better than because this is way better than like Doctor Manhattan showing up in the new Fifty Two Scott Lobdell Superboy book. Like that would have felt like a real kick in the dick. You know this 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 at least has has some sort of respect and majesty to it. Again, it's still a bad idea. I'm not I am not saying that way. I still wish it didn't exist but at least they're attempting to do right by it. Yeah. yeah. Let's just, let's just say I'm glad the, the Simpsons ended in 1998 and we don't have to. <laughs> yes, of course. Uh, well, Greg, thank you so much for stopping by the show this week and chatting okay. with us. Uh, where can folks find you talking about comics or about other things on the internet? Uh, you can find me uh, talking about comics over at uh, Robots from Tomorrow, uh, the aforementioned multiversity podcast, which I will be returning to uh, from my sort of sabbatical, not really sabbatical, uh, quite quickly. I think uh, Mike and I are going to be recording uh, this weekend. Um, you can also find me at, uh, at Greg Matasevich over on Twitter. That's G-R-E-G-M-A-T-I-A-S-E-V-I-C-H. Um, and... You know, I guess uh, sort of on multiversity wherever I sort of pop up and, you know, talk about stuff. <laughs> well, I'm not used to doing like my own plugs. <laughs> leave, that to, leave that to Mike. It's like, where can we talk about you? And it's like, uh, uh, Twitter? Thing? Thing? Yeah. <laughs> Handle? Yes. Okay. Well, uh, yeah. Everybody listen to Robots from Tomorrow. It's so much more professional than our show. That is true. That is true. I, I was recently talking to our, our, our mutual friend, Paul Lai, about podcasts. And I was yeah. saying how one of my favorite things about the Multiversity Podcast is that all the shows really, I think, represent who the hosts are 
And mm-hmm. as I was saying that, I was like, I've just damned our, uh, damned Vince, Zach, and I <laughs> to being the Luddites, the Lughead, the Lunkheads, the uh, the morons of the multiversity world. But so be well, it. no. Uh, also, uh, Paul's show doesn't give you nearly the depth of his. Uh, uh, I wouldn't say depravity, but his like I like it when you guys argue. And yeah, you're know, like oh, Paul. I think Paul is such a sweet, sweet, sweet man. Yes, but he is. It, it's funny that we all joke about him being like, oh, we start to argue. Oh, Paul's gonna love that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he loves high drama. Let's put it that way. He does uh, uh, in he, all he forms. Does. Yeah. All right. No. Uh, thank you so much for again for letting me uh, uh, come on. And, and uh, hijack some Watchmen talk, and uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing you guys, uh, you know, talk about Doomsday Clock. Uh, so yeah, yeah, good times, good times. I'm I'm super excited. I'm super pumped for it. Uh, yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be a thing. It's gonna be great. It's gonna be awesome. Uh, my sort of last thought about this with Greg on the air here is that I uh, I remember when before Watchmen came out, and. Uh, Multiversity, uh, former editor David Harper and I reviewed every issue of Before Watchmen for the first, like, three months. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point, it just became such a slog that we just kind of forgot about it. And, like, it was never decided, like, we're not going to review this anymore. It just, at some point, it just, it just fell off. And I wonder if there's any way that Doomsday Clock won't be in the forefront of our minds for the next year. Probably not. And so that's, that's where we'll leave it for now. Stick around for us to talk about this week's Rebirth titles in just a minute. Hello, we're the hosts of the Multiversity Manga Club podcast. I'm Emily. I'm Zach. And I'm Walter. Each month, we pick a manga to read and discuss among ourselves. Past books include Monster, A Silent Voice, and Pokemon Adventures. We also look back on the past month's installments of Weekly Shonen Jump, discussing the highs and lows from the Viz Anthology. We've even discussed notable manga adaptations like Netflix's Death Note. At the end of each episode, we announce next month's book club pick so you can read along with us. We're always open to suggestions for future books as well. So join us on the first Friday of every month on MultiversityComics.com, Apple Podcasts, or your podcatcher of choice. And we are back. Before we jump into the Rebirth titles, there was a bit of DC news that we felt it was our obligation to talk about, and that is the uh, publication of a BuzzFeed article that detailed the uh, inappropriate actions of now former DC editor Eddie Braganza. Uh, this has been a bit of an open secret in the comics industry for many years. I mean, I speaking for myself, I think I've been aware of this at least three or four years. Does that sound about right for you guys? At least, yeah. Yeah. I would I would say sometime shortly after the new 52 started. So yeah, probably four four-ish years. I remember the first New York Comic-Con I attended was 2010 and Berganza was the moderator of that panel. But I don't believe I've been to a DC panel since then. So in my mind it's been since 2010, but I don't think it was that long ago. I think it was probably like you said, you know, right after the new 52 began. But essentially, yeah. uh, Berganza had been uh, accused of sexual uh, harassment, a sexual assault, and uh, you know had had supposedly completed whatever Warner Brothers sort of parents, uh, whatever the parent company's sort of you know um, 
anti-harassment, anti, uh, he, he basically took his, took his corporate lumps, let's put it that way. But nothing that ever happened in terms of him losing his job or even, I think, really being seriously considered to lose his job until this BuzzFeed article came out. And then within 24 hours, he was suspended. And within, I think it was 48 or 72 hours, he was fired. Um, you know, obviously, well, I hope if you listen to this show, you would, you would know us well enough to realize that we don't have a problem with the firing of Eddie Braganza and that it's, it's long overdue. Um, I do think that there is a conversation to be had, and, and I, I don't think necessarily now is the time to have that conversation about sort of what the responsibility of, of both the, the organization and the fan is in this, terms of this sort of stuff. But I think just sort of for, for a quick reaction here, I mean, this is what DC had to do, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it should have been done. Like you said, it was long overdue. Um, I'm glad we're finally getting to a point where hopefully it seems like these people will start paying for it, you know? Right. Um, yeah. And frankly, I think that as a, as a podcast, we haven't talked about it enough. I think we have mentioned, I think we have made jabs at Berganza in episodes past, but we've never had a discussion about it. We've never talked about it. I mean, part, I, part, part of that is because we're not reporters and we're not. Exactly. You know, As I was yeah. going to say, you know, all of this was hearsay. All of this was, was rumor and innuendo. Although I, I certainly believed it. There oh was, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's time we start believing. I mean, as a society. Yes. Yes, certainly. Um, do you guys? I, I I know that that there were certain members of the Multiversity staff who refused to buy books Berganza edited, and you know, good on them for that. I think that's a that's a uh, that's a good position to take. You know, if if you feel strongly about something, you know, voting with your wallet is always a good way to ensure that your voice is heard. So I think that's that's an excellent thing that people were doing, but. Is there, how do I put this? Now, now that we know about this, how do we react to this? Like, he's gone. What can we do as fans to make sure this sort of thing doesn't happen again? Is it just being more vocal when we hear these rumors? Is that, is that our responsibility? Well, I mean, I think it's definitely, I mean, it's taken this kind of like, cultural perception shift like this this sort of like drive in the media to to highlight and focus on these things to even make this happen um you know so i think we need more of that it i don't know it's hard because without that like it the fan base is even though we're like more united and vocal through things like social media, we're still so dispersed and kind of without a lot of power necessary to make these kind of things happen. It, I don't know. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's just really hard. Vince, what say you? 
Yeah, I mean, um, here, <laughs> uh, you're talking about us specifically, re- responsibility or comics media in general. I, I would say uh, I would say both, and not just media. I, I think that you know. Look, if if the three of us knew about this, it's because more than likely we read it on Bleeding Cool, right? And and Bleeding Cool is not like this inside journalism website. Comic fans of all stripes are reading Bleeding Cool, so it's not like this was something that was discussed in the secret comics journalism dinner parties that we throw, right? This is something that the, the comics in general were aware of. So what can comics in general, but us in particular, do with these things in the future, with this information in the future? Yeah, I guess um I guess what I'd what I'd like to see happen is um the the people with the the people with the money, you know, everything everything is money talks, you know. I'd like to see them do the right thing more quickly. And that includes like the big comic sites. And is Multiversity one of those? Well, we're not, we're not CBR and we're not Newsarama. They're more connected than we are. You know, uh, the actual people doing journalism, comics journalism or journalism in general you know it took buzzfeed to to dig into this you know and speaking for myself and speaking for this podcast i i don't know how to be a journalist if somebody gives me something or i hear something i i will pass it on you know to but but i'm not you know <laughs> we're i'm not a journalist you know i i wouldn't know what to do with something like that. Does that make sense? Sure. Right. I mean, and well, and, and it's also tough because while we work, you know, for a quote unquote comics journalists, journalism site, we're not, you know, beat reporters actually like going out and seeking, um, you know, statements from people and getting to, the the truth of the matter you know at at best we would just be regurgitating things that we heard from bleeding cool um you know and so that's tough too but but here's what i will say if anybody happens to be listening to this and they have anything like that and they feel like they need to send it to us you know we'll do the right thing with (laughs) with that information absolutely for sure absolutely and and I'm I also promise to be more vocal about things like this. But I, I like I know like on social media I've mentioned Berganza in the past. You know, I've, I've mentioned, uh, you know, I've talked about actually the day that the BuzzFeed thing came out in the morning. I was talking about Berganza on Twitter. I had no idea the BuzzFeed thing was coming, and then you know, lo and behold, after lunch I was checking Twitter and and there was this BuzzFeed article, and it was like. Well, <laughs> I guess, you know, uh, it was just luck, you know, that, that, that this happened. And, uh, and I was relieved to see it. It was really good. It was really brave of those women, first of all, to work with, um, the BuzzFeed reporters that worked on that, that 
article. Um, so, you know, we got to applaud them. Um, but, uh, yeah, I guess, I guess it's up to us, you know, if, if, if we're not journalists and we can't, we're not doing the, be more vocal about vocal about what we do know, you know, mm-hmm. um, cause yeah, the Berganza stuff had been going on for, for a while. And frankly, if we see it in our own, you know, mini community, we can point it out too. Uh, obviously, that's the most important thing. But thankfully, on this show, I don't think we have any. You know, hopefully, we don't have any issues with that. I um, I do want to talk a minute about what sort of the responsibility that DC has going forward is. You know, I have seen some people calling for the firings of. People like Bob Harris, Dan DiDio, people who clearly were aware of it. I mean, look, if we were aware of this happening, then then Harris and DiDio are certainly aware of this happening. Do you guys mm-hmm. think that more heads are going to roll as a result of this, or do you think that this is this is pretty much it? Uh, I sadly, I kind of think that this is probably it. Um, and I only think that this happened because of like extreme duress and pressure, you know, because of the current climate. It um, made the back page of the New York Daily News. So yeah. I mean that's that's a big deal. Yeah, but I, I kind of you know, cynically see this as like Warner Brothers in DC kind of having their like sacrificial lamb i guess you know yeah yeah like being able to say oh well you know we 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 cut out the problem and we we cut the head off the problem you know like this is we fixed it basically <laughs> yeah um, um i don't know I, I guess i guess i think that that's that's the way it's going to go too like i don't think especially not in the midst of what has been a, sadly, this is the way things work. What's, what's, you know, been in the midst of a fairly successful time in DC's publishing, recent publishing history. I don't think you're going to see too much of a shakeup like that. I wonder if this happened, like if this broke wide in the middle of the sort of shit new 52 time, like, you know, two and a half years in the new 52 if this had broken if it would have been if if everybody would have been cleaned out at that point mm-hmm. that's a good point yeah yeah you know the, the other thing I, I did want to talk about very briefly here is that you know this is obviously not just an Eddie Braganza problem you know former DC writer Brian Wood has um you know a well-recorded history of sexually inappropriate behavior and yet Brian Wood is, is still writing comics, you know, uh, for major publishers even today. Um, and I know, Zach, you and I had a conversation about this one time about the idea of, of, of forgiveness and of giving people a second chance with this sort of stuff. And I, I certainly am not calling for Briganza to get a second chance today or any day. I just think it's an interesting conversation to be had. Like, you know, there, there are policies in place at these publishers for when somebody does sexually harass somebody else. And from all accounts, it appears that Braganza went through all the steps that that Warner Brothers had laid out for him. 
Uh, do you think that this is this the end forever for Eddie Braganza in comics, or is there a way that he can come back from this if he truly shows remorse and change and all that, or will the industry even give him the opportunity to do that? Uh, I I don't see him coming back. I think this is kind of a career ender. <laughs> you know, I don't I don't really know how you come back from this. I know some people, I know people have, um, you know, to just today uh, there, I don't know if you guys saw this, but there was, um, the title for the new fantastic beast movie was released. And along with that, like a lot of cast photos of Johnny Depp, um, because he plays a title, like the, the title character in the, in the film now, you know, he's, he's getting like, extreme star billing and in light of, you know, his allegations and things, um, you know, he seems to be doing just fine. Um, now granted, like Johnny Depp has way more like star power than Eddie Braganza does. Um, but I don't know. I, 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 Eddie Braganza to be editing comics, you know, Vince, what do you think? Yeah, I, I don't think he'll. I don't think he'll be back in in comics in any sort of a, you know, even at a smaller publisher. I I think maybe. I wouldn't be surprised if if he got work in you know, uh, TV or some other type of media. You know, some low level. I mean, the the problem I have, especially with. I mean, I have I have a problem with anyone that behaves that way, obviously, and it's tough to want to give any of those people a, a second chance. Um, but the problem, particular specifically with Eddie Berganza, is that rather than suffer, okay, so he went through whatever sort of sexual harassment training or therapy. I don't even know, you know, whatever he did, whatever steps were taken. He, you he know? checked whatever boxes were required to be checked. Yeah. What he didn't do was ever issue any sort of statement or apology or acknowledgement at all, which, you know, 99.9% of all apologies are bad. <laughs> like, like C, CK, comma, Lewis, Franken, comma, Al, uh, you know, <laughs> anyone who's yeah. made one, you know, but you still do that, you know? That's still something you do, right? Yeah. And that never happened. Uh, if anything, he's basically been hidden, you know? When's the last time you saw a quote from Eddie Berganza in anything? It's been 2010? Yeah. <laughs> you know? He's basically been this... Um, he's basically been like a, a, a hermit at DC, you know... Obviously, they don't want him out. They don't want him uh, to be the face of anything, right? His yep. name is on all this stuff, but they don't ever make him. They haven't ever made him like the face of anything since these allegations came out. And so they were content with just hiding him away. And that's why I think. Um, and that to me, that's why heads need to roll more than they already have. Yeah, I agree with that, and I also think that's why you don't. 
that's why you don't give him a second chance. I mean, I think it's hard enough to give these people a second chance when they behave this way as adults. You know, they know that what they're doing is wrong. Um, but there's been there's been absolutely nothing in the way of control. There's been no outreach at all. There may have been internal things, steps taken, but absolutely no outreach on his part or DC's really. Like, right. It would have been totally different if five years ago a statement was released that, you know, allegations were made against DC editor Eddie Braganza. We we're looking into this and whatever. And then Braganza made a statement that said, you know, essentially I fucked up. I am working through this. I have way, even if that's bullshit, as you said, Vince, I have way more respect for that because it's at least acknowledging the situation as it's happening. Yeah. To to essentially not say anything, you know, and again, not to defame somebody for whom we're not giving them their side. I'm not talking about Braganza here, but you know, the rumor is that Dan DiDio deleted his Twitter at one point because people were tweeting at him so much about Eddie Braganza that yeah. he got off a social media platform to dodge questions about an employee that he was harboring that uh that was that was accused of of this sort of thing. Now, again, we don't know the full set of the story. I'm not I'm not saying that's exactly what happened, but to me that is far worse than just dealing with it in an honest and open way. Right. So I don't know. Right. And and I mean, I know comics themselves are in a in a bad place, but don't you think WB has enough clout or money to like to have you know thrown some money behind something that 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 would run counter to what Eddie Braganza did? Like, hey, you know, not only are we gonna um, you know fire him or suspend him or whatever we wanted to do. But we're also going to donate to this, or we're also going to, you know, any right, any, any, yeah, you know what I'm saying, like. But instead, they just make it go away, and. I remember now uh, one of the times when it sort of came to the forefront was when Shelley Bond was let go, mm. and she the the supposed reason for her being let go was because they were trying to save some money. And people were saying, like, you know, they're getting rid of this iconic, very well-respected editor of, at Vertigo, and they're keeping this, you know, this, this Harvard sex offender at DC proper and how, how wrong that was. And, uh, yeah. you know, I think any time DC has claimed cost-cutting measures since the first allegations came out, you have to kind of call bullshit on that. Mm-hmm. Think about this. Shelley Bond, um, the the brave women in this BuzzFeed article. Think about all the women that couldn't or wouldn't get jobs at DC that didn't even work there at any time, but just couldn't couldn't or wouldn't even be considered because he was there. You know, right. yeah. I mean, this is this. It's not only is it not a safe environment for the women that work there already, but it's a restrictive environment for people who frankly would have deserved a look, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, DC at the time would have rather, uh, not hired women in the, whatever, uh, corner of their publishing line Berganza was in at any given time, rather not hire women there than to, 
upset the apple cart that they already had, which is ridiculous to me. That's that's the crime in all of this is that, you know, not only were these specific women hurt, but it was just a toxic environment for women in general, which is. And again, like, you know. I'm I'm not comparing Multiversity to DC Comics because it, it it's apples and oranges, obviously. But there was a situation, and and uh, I don't believe I've ever spoken about this publicly before, uh, where there was somebody who was uh, briefly on staff uh, in the relatively recent past who made a uh, a really shitty joke on Twitter about um, I'm not gonna say what it's about. I don't want anybody to try and research this, but a Multiversity contributor made a really shitty joke on Twitter, and we let them go instantly. Because we just felt like we did not want to, we didn't want, we didn't want anybody to think that represented the views of multiversity, and we just wanted to say like, you know, this is done. This is how we have to move on with this. Is it inconvenient to have to fire somebody? Absolutely. Does it create immediate headaches in the aftermath of that? Absolutely. But when faced with the right thing to do, you got to do the right thing. It's just I, I don't know what else to say. You know, and the fact that DC didn't do the right thing for the reasons, as you say, Vince, for not upsetting the apple cart, that's really disappointing as as a fan of DC Comics. And if they did not fire Berganza, I could see a world in which maybe I didn't want to... I mean, look, this is they shouldn't be applauded for doing something they should have done five years ago. I'm not saying that this fixes DC, but at least they did something about it, because I could... I could see a situation where I wouldn't want to necessarily be covering DC at the moment. Hmm. I don't know. Well, we were going to do like a minute on this, and uh, <laughs> we've gone for like any. Sort That's of all right. Cl- it's important. It is important. Any any closing notes on this? Um. Just just please believe women. Um. If you're and a men. man, and if, believe anybody and, and, who's who's coming forward with a uh, with yes. a story of this, but especially believe women. Yes, that, that's true. Yeah. If you're believe, a man, believe victims. Like, believe victims. There you go. That's yeah. Zach. You're, Zach's always the best. He should be saying this. So, no. um, and and call it out if you see it in your own. You know, um, that's. That's a big that's a big thing. You know, we can all call it out if if we see it. And um and do better, DC. <laughs> yeah. I, I I believe in my heart because I'm an optimist that they will. I also think it's it's worth very quickly mentioning that Marvel made a hire this week. Um, and we're not gonna name names here. Marvel made a hire this week that has a history of harassment as well. And it's one thing to get rid of a harasser. It's another thing to hire one. And uh, I don't know what the fuck's going on with the House of Ideas. <laughs> yep. All right, we're going to take another quick break here. Everybody, so we can, so we can wash out our mouths of this uh, unpleasant taste. And get into some comics and get a whole different unpleasant taste in our mouths uh, <laughs> right after this. Mm, soda cola. Yep. <laughs> 
Hi, I'm Paul, the host of the Comic Syllabus Podcast, a weekly show on the Multiversity Network of Podcasts. We read widely and we dig deep, bringing different analytical approaches to our study and appreciation of the wide variety of comics out there. Along with comics teachers, critics, and creators, we do close readings of classic and current exemplars of the medium. And we invite you to join us every Tuesday here at MultiversityComics.com. So let's dig deep. And we're back with our discussion of the Rebirth books. Uh, we're going to do a little rapid fire because this has already been a very, very long show. So uh, Aquaman 30, anything to say? Yeah, this was, uh, you know, typically good. Yeah, it's great. It's a great book. Mm-hmm. Is, is um, this is this the last uh, Shayek issue? I believe it might be. It's either this one or next one. I hope it's the next one because this isn't really a satisfying like end point yeah. yet. And I know he's doing covers for at least the rest for for a couple more too. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Watching the uh, Richard Spencer guy get punched. In this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Next issue has art by Ricardo Federici. Yeah, I believe Federici's the new uh at least for the end of this current arc. But we'll see. Yeah. But Shayek uh I mean continues to do great work here. And this just this book's just working right now. You know, it's just it's it's a it's a really fun, really different status quo for the characters. It's uh, it manages to both be, and I was thinking about this before. It manages to both tell a really interesting story, but do so in a way that is incredibly new reader friendly. There, there, there's even though this has been one, pretty much one solid story since Rebirth started, it's not like if you just came on a couple issues ago, you couldn't follow what was happening. But if you have been there since the beginning, there's so much more depth and nuance there. It's really, it's a great book. One of the best. Yes, absolutely. Um, that brings us to Batman number 35, written by Tom King, illustrated by Joel Jones. Vince, is this one of your hot take books this week? Maybe. <laughs> I knew it as I was reading it. <laughs> Guys. You like this issue. I loved this issue. <laughs> what? This issue was so bad, Vince. <laughs> I knew this was going to happen. Ow. I knew it was you, Fredo. You broke my heart. <laughs> I'm smart. I'm a smart guy. <laughs> I can handle things. Uh, I loved it. I knew you were going to like it. As I was reading I it, I'm saying Vince is going to love this shit. I knew it. <laughs> What do you like about it? I'm so perplexed. I just don't get it. Frankly, so am I. Um, I can tell because... you what, what you like about it. But you, you, you try it first. I'm going to take my hand. No, I want, I want Brian to tell me what he thinks that Vince likes about it first. <laughs> okay, so at, as I was reading this, there were a couple of things. I feel like this had the least amount of repetitive dialogue of any King Bat book. There was, like, people were listening to each other. And and reacting to what the other one was saying instead of just repeating things over and over again. Uh, but the things oh, that I think so. okay, the the things that Vince liked, Vince loved the the dick teasing Damien stuff. <laughs> yeah, Vince loved that. Vince uh-huh. Vince enjoyed the fact that Wonder Woman is not canonizing Bruce, but that she sees him honestly. 
and that she sees herself honestly through him and that, you know, she just, that, I mean, it's a dumb line, but she says like, he's just the stupid man I'm stupidly in love with. You mean Catwoman? Catwoman. Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, Yes, well, I love that. Can I tell you? Can I can I pause you for one second? Sure. Yeah. I at that moment, I pictured Batman as Frank Drebin from the Naked Gun <laughs> movies, and I thought if if Tom King had been writing Batman the way that Selina describes him in this issue, for these last thirty five issues, this whole run would have been so much better and makes so much more sense to me. But you you have to admit that for the first like twenty or so issues, Batman was written as a total like deranged psychopath, not like a stupid man out for justice, but like a psychopath. And I much prefer this idea that Tom King and Selena think uh-huh. that he's he's a stupid man, stupidly out for justice. No, see, I think that's where I, I feel like this is just like part and parcel. I feel like this is like how. He's been writing Batman the whole time. You think so? See, I yeah. I felt the difference there. Like the truth hurts, Vince. Not as much as jumping on a bicycle without a seat on it, but it hurts. <laughs> That's a Nick Gun two and a half joke, right I, there. I got it. Right. Yep. Yeah. Just, just making sure. Okay. Yeah, I mean, maybe I'm off. Maybe I don't know. I just I thought this was just more of the same. I I will say this. I I sort of uh, I sort of fall in between you guys. I felt this was this was the best issue. Of this current arc by by a long shot, but I still think it's it's pretty annoying. Um, but I, I I feel like at least after reading this issue, I will say that I understand why Selena is in love with Bruce. Mm-hmm. Even if I still think it's a bad idea, I I feel like for the first time there's some motivation there that I understand. Oh man, I don't know what I got from it is like. Yeah, he's this man-child who can't get over something that happened when he was 10, but <laughs> I guess I still kind of like him. Uh, see, for me, the... Yeah, okay. For me, the the parents thing, this was finally the parents thing not factoring in as heavily for me. Like, I get what you're saying, but like when I was reading this, I was like, not that he's over that, but like it didn't, it was not a focal point of this issue or, or of him in it oh, at all. I, that's, that's a good point because I, I, okay. I guess that's, that's the thing I liked about this issue, but it's also a thing that I don't like about this issue. <laughs> this was a great Catwoman comic, mm-hmm. a very good Catwoman comic. Um, Bruce like wasn't in this at all. Or, like, when he was in it, he was just like, oh, man, I'm r- really hurt, you know? Ugh. Like It was so great. That was, you know, that was awesome. Yeah, yeah. He's, he was, like, nothing in this issue. Um, and, but it's, like, still a Batman comic, you know? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, uh, I don't know. If anything, this issue told me that maybe... Tom King should be writing a Catwoman comic <laughs> illustrated by Joel Jones. Yeah. Well, Bendis will be doing that. So, well, there you go. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. And so, I mean, I still thought that there was like some of that like repetitive dialogue. Like there's a, during the like Talia Catwoman fight, um, you know, there's a part where like Talia is like, 
do you think you're equal to him? And Selena says, I do. And really, you think that you, you know, <laughs> but that happened once, not nine times. No, nah, I mean, it happens it, there. That's like one example. There were other examples. Um, I don't know. Uh, and, and, and like another thing, I, I had like a moment this week on Twitter where like, I don't know, Tom, I'm getting like real personal with Tom King now, but like Tom King's been like tweeting a lot about like his, um, his like writing style and like how he like gets over writer's block and like his like philosophy of writing and like people that I really like, like, um, like Elizabeth Breitweiser and some other people have been like retweeting him and interacting with him. And I'm like, Tom King's probably like a really great guy and he like I have loved and read I've read and loved things that he's written and I probably crap on his Batman way too much. <laughs> I felt like a little bad about it. I don't know. Well, I I mean I I think I think what we do well on the DC3 is we're honest and we put in the work and, and sometimes that means like our opinion on a book can change and it can change from issue to issue. Like I fully expect to read Batman issue 36 and hate it. <laughs> you know, this yeah. was such a weird feeling for me to, to read this issue and honestly like it, but I'm not going to pretend that like, I feel what happens sometimes in comic book reviewing is that somebody forms an opinion on a book from the first arc or the first issue that they read. And then that informs their opinion of the book until the creative team changes or the book's canceled. And at a certain point we, you stop talking about that book, you know, mm -hmm. but on this show we've reviewed 35 plus issues of Tom King's Batman to date. Right. And I feel like we do a really good job of being honest about how our feelings on the book or each issue are changing, you know? And so I don't think we were too harsh. Like, I think we honestly felt all those things the, the whole way through. And to me, it, Batman is the proof of our it being able to be honest because we were so fucking hyped for that book. <laughs> and the yeah. fact that we did a, a complete 180 on it and thought, oh, no, this is bad. This is real bad, guys. Abort. The fact that we were able to do that shows that we don't have an agenda going in, that yeah. our agenda is to be honest with how we feel about the books. I This is all really funny to me because another um, comic book review site that amongst ourselves – especially when it comes to like reviews for this book, we talk about it with each other and, and said site gave this issue a rather scathing review then. So I'm, I'm glad to know that uh, <laughs> the opinions are still like inversely related. Wow. That, that, that just proves that we're right. I mean, <laughs> sure, sure. Well, let's, let, let's ship me on over to the well, Batman. Wait, 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 oh, wait, wait. Can I can I just I just want to say one more thing about this issue. Okay, go for it. It was it was really the end that made it for me when when Batman and and Catwoman come out of the cave and they see Damien and Damien asks the first thing Damien asks him is are you happy? And now we've criticized the way that Tom King has written Damien in past issues. Mhm. Mm um 
but I believe I believe Damien kind of walking, especially after this conversation he's had with Dick and realizing that Damien's been wrong all this time and he realizes this. I totally buy him like walking right up to Batman and being like, are you happy? <laughs> because like he needs to prove his point. Right. Mm-hmm. And then I buy like, I can't believe I'm saying this, but Bruce like looking at Selena and then being like, I'm getting there, you know, like this, this is the Batman that I'm willing to write, you know, like, Tom King's Batman up to this point being this like angry psychopath who can't be happy was so over the top. I couldn't stand it, you know? And if there's, if he's willing to have a little bit of light in Batman, I can maybe start to tolerate this, you know? (laughs) And then, uh, from your lips to Tom's ears, uh, 65. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I just wanted to mention that. I thought that was – and then the little joke at the end about did you happen to see mother? Yeah, she stabbed your dad in the back, so I stabbed her in the back. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, that's – that. this is more or less, you know, more like the Batman I wanted when when Tom King signed up for this. So, so I, I look forward to issue uh, 36 and the, 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 the team up with Superman totally letting me down. But uh, – yeah. But man, did I like this for one for one issue? I'm uh, I'm pretty proud of my Vince bullshit detector that I, <laughs> that I knew you were gonna like this when I was reading it. Not I'm, I'm I'm not back on my bullshit. I'm on some new bullshit entirely. Right, but but I but I was aware of it. So you got it. You yeah. nailed it. Yeah, we finish each other's sandwiches. I get it. Zach, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> It happens. I've liked issues of this series too, so that's that's true. That's yeah. true. We we do this dance in the pale moonlight. I was just gonna say that. Fuck you. <laughs> uh, all right, let's um, let's jump over to the Batman who laughs. Number one, uh, the most twisted book there is, uh, written by James Tyne on the fourth, illustrated by Riley Rosmo. I didn't realize Rosmo was doing this issue. So this was a really nice surprise for me opening it up. Did you get through it? I mean, it was so scary. I mean, it, you know, I I'm not gonna say I didn't shit my pants, but I uh, I did manage to get through it. Yes. At least this one had Riley Rossmo art. Yeah. yeah. And I'm and I mean like ah. Uh... The art was really good. And the idea, I guess, of a, like, a Batman who has been, like, Jokerized. Do you mean he has. Say it like that. Do you mean he has cheese and bacon put on him? Yeah, exactly. Okay. (laughs) I, I felt like when we saw, like, how it played out. It was, it was an interesting concept. I don't think it was maybe like executed super well. I don't know. There was just like, I never needed to see like Batman with like 
automatic weapons gunning down the entire bad family. Like I never needed to see that. Um, <laughs> yeah. And now I've seen that, but um, I, I will say that this, this character is the only one of the dark Knights that matters in a way. Like he's important, so I understand why this one needs an needs an origin story. So I feel like I'll give it a little bit more rope because I feel like it's just a, it's a story that feels like it needs to be told. Mm. Whereas the other ones, even though in 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 reality it doesn't, but sort of in because of the character's stature within metal, it feels like this one needs to be told. Whereas the other ones yeah. felt like like. like how much is the Dawnbreaker really done, right? Do we really need that issue? But we see the Batman who laughs all the time. Like that, that character has has a more important part of this of this uh, story to be told. I, I think it's a really bad character. <laughs> oh, it's not good at all, and it's a blatant Judge Judge Dredd ripoff, as, as we've said. Yeah, um, but it, it's like I, I I love metal for how fun it is, but anytime the the Batman who laughs shows up, that immediately gets killed for me. Can I can I also say that I really like that costume that he has in the middle of the issue better than the one he has mm. in the present, the one with like the green bat symbol and the yep. green yep. the one where he's lining just, on the cake, on the, the cake, just on the cake. starting to get twisted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that costume so much better. Um, I mean, I guess I understand why they went with this weird mouth of Sauron thing, but, um, um, yeah, I, uh, I just think I thought the whole, like, uh, thing with the playing cards was so hokey, (laughs) like, Oh, uh, another uh, poker metaphor or something. And, you know, when it comes to heroes and villains, like how how often is like poker or like playing cards used as a metaphor? I don't yeah. know, something, For, something, Lady Gaga. <laughs> <laughs> Let's have some fun. The speed is sick. I want to take a ride on your disco stick, Zach. <laughs> as one does. <laughs> Um, and then, and then, yeah, just the whole, like, dang, twisted Batman Joker. I was talking to Alice from the site, and, um, she's not current on metal, so she was asking me, you know, like, it's, is it just basically Final Crisis, but, like, all about Batman? And I said, it's, metal is Final Crisis, but instead of the villain being dark side, the villain is Batman, but also the Joker. <laughs> and she was like, this sounds like the worst thing in the world. <laughs> I don't, you know, and, and I, I told her that part is the worst, but like everything else is awesome. Um, and that's how I felt about this issue. Uh, <laughs> that double page spread that like nightmare, the nightmare versions of the different characters uh-huh. was gorgeous. Oh, so yeah. good. I, Riley Rosmo is dope. Very. And just that that one like uh, Dark Side Superman New God thing. Yep, yep. That's the best. And then like I love in the middle there's like the combined versions of like heroes and villains like the the Brainiac Superman is really cool and the Cheetah Wonder Woman. Um 
man, there are like so many like great little things in that like spread. Oh, Rosmo's just the best. Yeah. He needs to draw everything. <laughs> He's pretty fast too, so he probably could draw everything. Well, let's talk about... Well, I have one Go more ahead. question. Sure. One more question. Um, do you think that that character that he's torturing is, like, someone important? It, it, that, that bit reminded me a lot of the, the um... Alexander Luther? The Zaz. Yeah. Zaz, yeah, thing from Forever Evil. Um, do you think this is somebody we'll see again? Do you think it's someone important? Is it supposed to be Bruce? That's what I thought. I did I com- did I completely miss that? Is it? I don't know. I, I thought Bruce was still like strung up on the the thing, like as an old decrepit man. Hmm. Maybe it is Bruce. I don't know. I read it as Bruce. It doesn't mean it is. That's just how I read it. Oh well. Comment disregarded then. <laughs> Let's talk about Batwoman quickly. Uh, Batwoman number nine, illustrated by um, Fernando Blanco, written by Marguerite Bennett. This is uh, we get some some sort of like you know hallucinogenic issue yet again. Um, I, this, this issue was fine. I really wish this book was more exciting than it is, though. Yeah. I thought the art was wildly good. Yeah, like, Blanco's great. Blanco, yeah, some of Blanco's best work, and the colors. John John Rauch, the colorist, mm-hmm. very cool color palette for these um, scarecrow issues. Lots of lots of pinks and purples that go really well with uh, Kate's red hair. And then when like when the greens come in, like the scarecrow toxin stuff comes in as green and that does a really cool thing with the with the pinks and the purples um so i i really dug looking at this issue um i guess i dug some of the like kate asserting herself stuff by the end but um but yeah it's not not quite there yet <laughs> like there were a lot of things about this issue that i enjoyed and i wish would be um like you know i thought visually it was great i like like you said sort of vi- kate's you know like realization of or not her realization her um like you said, her, her asserting herself more i think all that's great i just don't see the rest of the issue being worthy of those moments hmm Zach, did you read this issue? Yeah, I did. Um, I thought it was fine. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Moving along, let's talk about Bug, The Adventures of Forager, number five, by the All Reds. I can already tell Vince didn't like this issue. Wow. How, wait, wait. How did you know that? Because you didn't like the last issue, and this is more of the same. You're right. Yeah. yeah. I, I liked exact. I liked exactly one thing about this issue. There was a line I wrote it down here. Blankenship 
Now that's a name I haven't heard since the Asla Mega City name shortening decree. <laughs> I actually chuckled at that. Um, part part partly because I read it in uh, Alec Guinness's voice. Um, There's but... a name I haven't heard since. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. Uh, other than that, I'm not even sure I actually read this issue. Um, I'm looking at it and I'm not remembering anything from it. You guys can talk about it. I mean, I, I'm going to stop repeating myself about this book. I think it's fun. I think I mean, it's it's super light. It's it's the All Reds playing around with some of their favorite characters. It's all super Kirby influenced, and it's sort of the 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 the, the like lower tier Kirby characters. You know, the old Omak and uh, you know Bug is like the least uh beloved new gods you know, it just it, it feels like it's a nice sort of tribute to the the second or third tier Kirby DC characters and I I really enjoy it but I I can understand why somebody wouldn't Zach yeah I'm I'm pretty much with Vince on this one like I this this book started off really well and I mean last issue really did leave a sour taste in my mouth and I and I think um kind of the delays that it's had have um really disconnected me enough from the plot where like I have trouble remembering exactly like what the significance is of everything and it it kind of feels like it's just plodding along I mean, the art is fantastic, but um, it's kind of a slog to read. I, d- I just don't understand, like, the the momentum that's carrying Bug from one sequence of events to another, you know? Like, mm-hmm. or Forager, whatever. I just can't, like, it is so weightless to me. I don't I don't get like I I forget what's happened from like you know the first half of the book to the second half. I mean like I said I I, I get that. Yeah. I um yeah. Yeah. I I'm not going to keep uh beating a dead horse over this. Did you guys read Future Quest Presents? I did. Um, I, I, Zach, I actually I didn't read this one. I skimmed it. It was fun. It was fun. It was all about the Galaxy Trio, um, who I vaguely remember from. They they were they had a cartoon, right? Like, or they were part of. I'm sure Space Ghost or something. I vaguely remember them. Um, the one thing I wanted to say about this issue is. Ron Randall's art. Oh man, so great. Fantastic. Like it's it's fantastic, but it's like perfectly I feel like this is what DC Comics looked like in the nine like not nineties, like um I don't know, like early two thousands or something. There's a very there's like a classic just clean DC feel to me. These characters all look like they should. And like, I feel like, um, 
you know, when I was in the prime of reading DC Comics, or I think it's timeless, really. Like, it's just so clean and and uh, superhero-y. Mm. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. It's um, I, I agree with that. It's yeah, really nice too. art. Like, Sp- Space Ghost looks like Space Ghost should, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Like the Alex Toth design with maybe slightly more detail added to it. But not that much. Yeah. I Get Ron Randall on, like, a regular book, I think. Agreed. More like Ron Randall today. On, yeah. Legion of Superheroes. There we go. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about Green Lanterns, number 35, written by Tim Seeley, illustrated by, um, oh, who was on this one? It was, uh, oh, Carlo Barberi. Barberi. Um, I said this last week, or two weeks ago, rather. I'll, I'll say it again. This is the best Tim Seeley Green Lanterns book so far, but that's not saying all that much. Yeah. I mean, this issue was kind of fun. Bullfong is fun. He was fun. Yeah. He was fun. I, I chuckled a few times. Yeah. Um, and I liked the art. Yeah. Simon getting his space swerve on. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, the title is amazing. Oh, Bullfunga, where art thou? Yeah. That's mm-hmm. fan. I mean, that's worth the price of admission, I guess. Um, the art is really good. Carlo Barberi. Um, I, I don't know. There's some, there's sort of like a, I don't want to say like a manga style, but there's like something about it, right? Like what, what would you, what would you, what would you call this? I mean, it's like very animated and it's like very. There's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of implied movement in his art. Yeah. 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 It was fun. I kind of I kind of lost the plot by the end <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Um like, I don't know what's going on with this uh Singularity Jane or whatever the hell her name is. But uh it's 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 better than the uh than the previous run. Yeah. Right. They just keep they keep teasing me with the singularity thing. And I know you're like such a for that. Well, let's let's get to the main course here, guys. Um, Hyper time is back. It is good again, and uh, <laughs> yes, it appears in Justice League number thirty three, written by Josh Williamson, illustrated by Tyler Kirkham and Michael Janin. Um, it's a weird art combination on this book. I think both of them are doing pretty decent work for what they do, but it, it was a little bit jarring to see them jumping back and forth. <laughs> yeah. 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 They're, they have very different styles. Yeah. Um, can I say one thing about this? Yeah. I, I, for the most part, I think this is like any other, uh, metal tie-in but 
it felt really good to see the moment between Cyborg and Raven. Yes. Um, that was long overdue, I think. And hypertime, motherfucker, come on. And, and hypertime, but I, it's just a, such a tease. We, we've we've seen hypertime one once or twice before in Rebirth, and you know, just just give it to us already. <laughs> I don't know how much we're ever gonna get hypertime. Like I, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think it might be stuff like this forever. Yeah, you're right. You just know. acknowledge, just acknowledging that it exists. Yeah. I did like seeing all the like alternate Earths that he's looking at that they, they see in different parts. Mm-hmm. You know, if you pay attention, there is one. Hang on, I'm trying to find it. There was a couple of of cool little uh, teases of of various things in Hypertime. Yeah, so let's let's talk about that. Let's, yeah, let's let's dig in a little. There so we've got. Go ahead, list them. Okay, so there's. There's simply what looks to be Aquaman with a beard. And so I don't know if that's just like sort of current. That looks like it could be like current Aquaman stuff. Yeah. Or it could be like Peter David, 90s Aquaman stuff. Hook hook hand Aquaman? Hook hand Aquaman, yeah. They should they should have shown you the hook. That's the money shot right there. Mm-hmm. Well, the hook brings you back. Oh Jesus Christ! <laughs> God, uh, you, you you left a Blues Traveler reference dangling there. I had to take it. Can you believe that they didn't show the John Popper uh, harmonica anthem that they <laughs> that they did at Lambeau Field at the first Packer game? They didn't show that on TV. They hid that under a bushel yeah. basket. Um, then you got Jason and Wonder Woman, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Then you've got the some, it's the some, it's the metal celestial thing from Green Lantern. Yep. And you've got Superman from is that Superman from, uh, from the Greg Pak run the of Greg action? Pac run. Yeah. Yep. Oh, all, sorry. Yeah, I skipped him. Yep. You got All Star Superman. Um. Then you've got Wally that, okay. and the old cut. But like oh. uh, kind of underneath Superman there and the Celestial thing. Uh-huh. Do you guys know what that is? That kind of looks like the Ravagers from the New 52, but I don't think it is. That, that is what that is. I'm almost positive. Man, that's a weird thing to throw in there. Somebody, uh-huh. so somebody owed Scott Lobdell like five bucks. And they're like, instead of paying you five bucks, I'm just going to throw the Ravagers in the uh, in the hyper time here. It's a deal. It's a deal, yeah. I, I don't know why he, he talks like Super Mario, but that's okay. <laughs> Do you guys, it's a deal. Lobdell. Do you guys follow uh, uh, NYC Guido Voice? Mario yeah. Brothers. Mar- no, <laughs> yeah. Mario Mario Brothers without context on Twitter. Yes, no. It's clips from the old Super Mario Brothers Super Show. It's great with no context, (laughs) and it's it's really funny. Just a little recommendation I want to slip in there. So then you've got uh, Wally West in the old costume. Yep. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you've got Batman Beyond 
it looks like. I think that might specifically be Futures and Batman Beyond. Okay. I think you're right. And you have Flashpoint, baby. Yep, that classic Flashpoint we all know and love. And then you've got, down in the corner, uh, Kate Kane in the future timeline. The colony stuff. Yep. And you've got Earth 2, right? Is that Earth Uh, 2 or is that... No, that's Justice League 3000. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, because of that Green Lantern. Okay. Yeah. I can can barely see that. I think I'm... Well, that's like the Supergirl that was in that too. And that's... Okay. some Collins art if I've ever seen it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't remember what what it's was there a Supergirl in um in Earth Two? It was Power Girl. Yeah. Okay. Didn't she have a costume similar to that or am I like by the end? I think eventually she did, yeah. yeah. Okay. I or I might be imagining things. I might be conflating the two. Mm-hmm. Then we have uh the, the Teen Titans there. The mm-hmm. um what do they call the Titans of Tomorrow? And what's that last thing over there? Is that uh? That's uh the the most recent Future Kids from Justice League. Yep. Oh yeah. So there you go, Hypertime. I think that I think that is Ravagers. You guys talk, and I'm gonna I'm gonna look for New Fifty Two Ravagers, and we'll see. I'm almost positive that's what it is, but we'll see. Um. But yeah, I mean, I love the concept of hypertime. I, I think it's one of the cooler DC concepts that fell by the wayside. I just don't know unless unless a book is doing a hypertime arc, I don't think you're ever going to see more than just this sort of stuff popping up. You know, hypertime yeah. it, it, it's 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 a nice like emergency in case of emergency break hypertime thing. You know, where <laughs> you, you you can fix certain continuity issues by by uh, by referencing it, but it's not. Something that's going to necessarily be part of the everyday uh, discourse. Is that is that a purple costume she's wearing? Because then that is Fair, Caitlin Fairchild from Ravagers. I believe it is purple, yes. Yeah. Oh, Ravagers are back, baby. Are they good again? <laughs> they were never good. <laughs> that's true. Um... I feel like if there was a panel like this in every comic every week, we would just spend the whole show dissecting these panels. <laughs> DC should just do one book um, a week where there's like a page like this. And we'll be happy as clams. But, yeah. but only if it has Simon Bass saying, I have accessed the Emerald site. And, <laughs> and then we have it. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Let's go. You're, over, you're right. Let's uh, let's hop over to Nightwing, Nightwing number thirty-three, written by Tim Celia again, uh, illustrated by Javi Fernandez. I know, I know, we've been a little bit harsh on this arc so far. Um, I, I believe Vince's exact quote was, "Who gives a shit about Blockbuster?" <laughs> but I will say this issue was much more effective for me. Yeah. I think it tied together a lot of the a lot of the things from the whole run pretty nicely. Maybe maybe this is our chance to talk about what what has Tim Seeley's Nightwing 
accomplished since Rebirth started. Like what what do you think what do you think its goals were and do you think it met them? Um, it brought Dick, it brought Dick back to Bloodhaven. Yes. It gave him a uh, sort of a signature foe in Raptor. I like Raptor a lot, yeah. Um, Gave him a nice love interest. For a little while, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think she's still... They're on again, off again. Yeah? Yeah. I like that. Um, Do you think think this is going to... Do you think this is going to last, or do you think Humphreys is going to steer away from all this? Well, I know he's keeping him in Bloodhaven. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I uh, I don't know if there's anything that this run did that will necessarily be important in in two or five or ten years of the Nightwing character. Like, I don't think bringing him back to Bloodhaven is all that significant. You know what I'm saying? Um, but I would say that for the first twenty or so issues, this was as solid as any of the rebirth books was. And I would say that the only reason for me that it's fallen out a little bit was, uh, that I don't care about blockbuster all that much. And I really liked the Dick and Sean pairing. And by splitting them up, I felt like the book lost some momentum, but I still Mm. don't think this is a bad book. I, I think that for whatever reason, the last arc or two hasn't really, stuck the landing as well as the others have, but I, I don't think that it's necessarily a, a, a bad title. Mm. Anything else to add about this issue? Mm. I don't think so. Okay. Then let's jump over to Super Sons number 10, written by Peter Tomasi with uh, guest art by... Uh, Jose Luis and uh, I uh, I feel like this is going to be another one of Vince's hot takes <laughs> hot hot in what way Um, I feel like you're not going to like this oh I loved this. oh good good I'm glad okay okay I thought this was fantastic, but I was afraid that you were gonna be uh, <laughs> you're gonna be on your on your bullshit about this for some no. reason. The 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 thing that got me so much was the intermezzo. Yes, <laughs> I was like, first of all, first of all, you wrote intermezzo up there. Yeah. <laughs> Second of all, the apocalypse is back on yeah. because I say so. And intermezzo. Most the most Damien thing has a more Damien thing has never been written. Yeah. No. And just can can I say like this issue? One one fine day, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's chugging along, you know. Eight pages in, what is this doing in this issue? <laughs> Like, what is, like, I understand it's setting up something that we're going to see again, you know? Yeah, it's totally pooping on my, uh, Tim Drake is the, 
the MacGuffin for the next arc. Yeah. Definitely yeah, I Damien think... now. Right. But I'm just like, what? Like, why is this here? You know? Um, yeah. But I loved it. And I loved the rest of the issue. Like, it's fantastic. Yeah, um, this is really good. Um, this is this book doing... Like, this is m- my favorite thing when, you know, it's just like... John and Damien just, like, kind of dicking around doing <laughs> weird kid stuff. Yep. Um, and And I was thinking with this issue that this is kind of like the third or fourth time that we've had this kind of issue... But I don't really ever get tired of it. Never. Never. In fact, I I kind of wish there was an entire book that just did... Like, it seems like so many DC books don't stop and breathe. Um, and I think Rebirth has been better about that, you know? But a lot of times it feels like it's just plot, 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 you know? I almost wish there was just one book that was like, okay, like... There's a Teen Titans book where they're doing plot and doing conflict and stuff like that. And then there's another Teen Titans book where it's just them. Hey, we're setting up our headquarters. This issue. We're going to the mall. You know? Yeah. There's got to be time for that. And I feel like with your youthful characters, that's a really great use of time. And issues like this are proof of it. Like, I love them inheriting a uh headquarters basically yep it's just such a fantastic the fortress of attitude oh god we're definitely not calling it that (laughs) um (laughs) and the jose luis art was really really nice yeah it's a very different feel than jimenez but it was it was nice Mm mm-hmm yeah it almost had like a at times, it had like a Jerry Ordway quality yep, to it. Yeah, that's Ooh, an excellent good, call. Good call. I liked it. Yeah, this book is great. What is the deal with uh, with John having a poster on his wall of leather uh, jacket Superboy? I don't know. I wondered about that. Hypertime. Hyper yep, there yep. you go, hypertime. There you go. Alright, let's uh let's keep chugging along here with Superman number thirty five, written by Patrick Gleason and Peter Tomasi, illustrated by a slew of people. Uh this issue had Travis Moore, Steven Scovia, and Art Thebert Thibert as uh, artists. Um this arc, and we've said this in the past, has a lot of good ideas and a lot of stuff that I thought I'd be really excited to see, but has sort of fallen flat in terms of how it actually hits, and I feel the same way about this issue. Yeah, yeah, again, I feel like, and maybe this is unfair of me to say, but I feel like I would be way more invested in enjoying this a lot more if Gleason was drawing it. It just feels like an arc that was made for him. Yeah. Can I, uh, I mean, my, my problem is, is that like this story, like if you gave me a synopsis of this, 
I'd be like, oh, this sounds like a really important arc for yep. Rebirth. This sounds like the sequel to uh, John's last big Justice League story. It sounds like it should be a really big deal. And what what we're getting is something that's treated not like a big deal at all. Mm-hmm. We like in the way that it's not that any of the artistic talent that they threw at it was bad, but like. There have been what five different artists on this now on this arc alone. Yep, and it just doesn't feel like it's being treated with any importance at all. I'm not sure how seriously I'm supposed to take any of this, even though it feels huge. <laughs> right. I'm wondering if, like, I don't know. Yeah, it definitely seemed like it was going to be a bigger thing, and you know, it was originally solicited with like. Gleason and Monkey doing all the art, and it was supposed to happen a few issues earlier. I'm wondering if maybe, like, there were some rewrites or something happened that, like, drastically changed the story. Yeah. Um, really seems like it. It seems like something happened. It does, for sure. Um, and it also makes me, like, what's, what's Gleason working on right now? Or I wonder if, you know, you know, we haven't seen him on the art side in a while. So either, like, there's some personal stuff going on or he's on another project. Mm-hmm. Ooh, I wonder, wonder what it could be. Yeah. Let's, let's, time. Yeah, let's wildly speculate about what book he's drawing. Uh, let's see. Bendis. Bendis, uh, Bendis Rebirth. <laughs> Bendis, Bendis Rebirth. He, so, uh, so somebody made the joke that the, that Bendis' first DC comic has to be called Bendis Rebirth, and it's the close-up of his face, the way all the other Rebirth issues. Yep. Where that and it'll, is, be, uh, it'll be that classic shot that is always used of him raising one eyebrow and yep. smirking. Yeah. All right, well... Uh, Trinity number fifteen, the the hopefully final part of this arc that seems to be going on for half my life. Written I mean, it said Ro- it ended. You could have fooled me. Yeah, uh, written by Rob Williams, illustrated by V. Ken Marion. Um, guys, I just don't care. Oh, this is the worst. I have a hot take. You like this? Shut up! Shut up! Alright guys, I hope you've enjoyed the DC class. We've had a good run. It's over. Did you eat some peyote buttons before you started reading the comics this week? Like what happened? Um I ate something. Okay. Oh gosh. Uh I I I <laughs> Was it that you enjoyed the wooden artwork, or that you enjoyed the hackneyed storyline, or that you enjoyed the totally predictable uh, actions, or what? Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Having all of the heroes of the story grab the lasso of truth at once was not predictable, my friends. You're joking, right? It was heartwarming as hell. And I liked it. 
Is this one of those things where the ambiguous ending never needs to be expanded upon? (laughs) No. Everything that you were supposed to get from the story happened in this in this story. You might say that this is the this arc is the Watchmen of its time. <laughs> Truly, V. Ken Marion is the Dave Gibbons of 2017. <laughs> From the Bloodlines reboot to the Watchmen of today. All right, we don't have to talk about it. Let's <laughs> let's just move on. All right, let's talk about the Wildstorm, gents. Number nine, written by Warren Ellis, illustrated by John Davis Hunt. Um, <laughs> what? I'm still laughing about. Oh, <laughs> Trinity. I thought you were going to have a hot take about this now, and you were going to, you know... No, this is still good. It's back. It's good again. It's good every month. I, I felt... Samurai Showdown was I, I was awesome. going to say, I feel like the Samurai Showdown was by far the highlight of this issue. Oh, uh, definitely. It was so good. John Davis Hunt is doing some next-level shit here. Mm. But also that single page before the flashback of just the cityscape. Yep. Mm-hmm. So good. And, I mean, it's really like... I, I, You know, it's the same argument we come back to of, like, there's only 24 issues, so every page matters, and so we have this one page of just a cityscape. But it's so pretty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, that that's a good point. Like, do we really need the establishing shot? But it's so nice to look at. Even like the whole samurai fight, like there could be an argument to be made that it could have been done on one page, but mm. it's it's this glorious like seven or eight page section that is, you know, stunning. But I totally yeah. understand why somebody who's more interested in the plot of this book would be a little bit bummed at the waste, the quote wasting of time. Yeah, and this book is such a slow burn, though. Like, you know, talk about a book that hasn't really done anything yet. It's still really establishing this world. I'm enjoying it establishing this world, but there's not like an overarching, necessarily storyline happening here yet. It's it's quite clearly like Warren Ellis getting away with murder. I think. Mm-hmm. But I like it. Um, <laughs> uh, I loved the. I loved how they continue to repurpose like DC properties for media within their, like Paul Kirk Manhunter, the show that this character apparently watches, is just repurposing the idea of the original Manhunter. Mm-hmm. See, I took it not as a show, but as a series of like Jason Bourne movies. Oh, I yeah, I whatever. whatever it could have been a show. I don't know. No, it could have been a show. I don't know. But I yeah, think they say. Fun. I think they say movies, but yeah. yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah, super fun. Good stuff. Uh, do we have anything to say about Wonder Woman Conan? Um, not hot really. Take, hot take. Vince is going to change his name to Aaron Lepresti. He loved it so much. <laughs> no, no. I Did either of you read it? 
I skimmed it. Okay. Zach? Yeah, I, I cracked it open. There, There's one thing that I kind of like about this book, and really I don't think it's anything to write home about. I think a very specific type of person will like this book, and it's somebody who's really invested in both the characters of Conan the Barbarian and Wonder Woman. Like, literally, you have to be super invested in both of the characters, I think, to enjoy this. Um, because the one thing I think it does well is it captures the weirdly romantic, and I don't mean romantic in, like, love way, although that is included, that is included a little bit in this, but I mean romantic as in the, like, Conan the Wandering barbarian who sometimes is a king and sometimes is a assassin and sometimes is a thief and there's this long through line of epic history that comes with the character you know and I feel like this book taps into that and sort of ties Wonder Woman to that in an interesting way in in this you know romantic dusty barbarian storytelling type way I think Gail Simone gets that really right, but I feel like the ultimate product is just kind of boring and standard. Like with less conventional art and a less conventional plot, this could have been something cool because I think Gail Simone's got the right sort of take on these characters, but it just ends up being a pretty conventional story about Wonder Woman and Conan meeting, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that it had the the bird monsters from the original Power Rangers movie in it. That was nice. <laughs> that takes me back. Yeah, me too. Totally. Uh... <laughs> oh, uh, let's let's find a reference that's more appropriate for you. Um... No, let's 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 fuck off. Let's, let's do that. <laughs> The birds from Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. Is that more around your time period? Sure. Sure. I was watching adult films in the 1960s. Yep. <laughs> oh, forgive me. It may not have been the movie. It may have been the, the show around the time of the movie. I will not no, forgive I you. I will too. not forgive you. No, I'm just kidding. They were in the movie too. I, I checked. They're they here. were. They were absolutely in the movie. There they are talking to Ivan News. I see him, <laughs> aka Apocalypse from the critically acclaimed X Men Apocalypse. Oscar Isaac. Yeah. All right. It's not him. He looks like him. Okay. Yeah. All right. Ivan Ooze well, was Paul Freeman, an English actor best known for his roles as the arch as the rival archaeologist Renee Bellick in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, oh. yeah. And also Ivan Ooze. Well, folks, that does it for this marathon edition of the DC Three Cast. Thank you for listening. As always, we, we do appreciate it. And we would love it if you would go to iTunes or rather Apple Podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe to the show. That would be nice. Um or comment on multiversitycomics.com or tweet at the three of us about your thoughts 
in regards to the show and DC Comics. I am on Twitter at Brian is an app. I'm at VJ underscore O-S-T-R-O-W-S-K-I. And I'm at SirFox89. And remember, we're going to have another episode later today about uh, Doomsday Clock, so check that out, and uh, we'll talk to you guys in just a few hours. I can't wait to write my tell-all about you.